Hell, there are no rules here. We're trying to accomplish something. Thomas Alva Edison on creating the first electric grid. Simon & Schuster Audio presents The Burning Wire, a Lincoln Rhyme Novel by Jeffrey Deaver Read by Dennis Boutsikaris Thirty-seven hours until Earth Day Part 1. The Trouble Man From his neck down, a man is worth a couple of dollars a day. From his neck up, he is worth anything that his brain can produce. Thomas Alva Edison Sitting in the control center of Algonquin Consolidated Power and Light's sprawling complex on the East River in Queens, New York, the morning supervisor frowned at the pulsing red words on his computer screen. Critical failure. Below them was frozen the exact time, 11.20.20.003 a.m. He lowered his cardboard coffee cup, blue and white, with stiff depictions of Greek athletes on it, and sat up in his creaky swivel chair. The power company control center employees sat in front of individual workstations, like air traffic controllers. The large room was brightly lit and dominated by a massive flat-screen monitor reporting on the flow of electricity throughout the power grid known as the Northeastern Interconnection, which provided electrical service in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Connecticut. The architecture and decor of the control center were quite modern, if the year were 1960. The supervisor squinted up at the board, which showed the juice arriving from generating plants around the country. Steam turbines, reactors, and the hydroelectric dam at Niagara Falls. In one tiny portion of the spaghetti depicting these electrical lines, something was wrong. A red circle was flashing. Critical failure. What's up? the supervisor asked. A gray-haired man with a taut belly under his short-sleeved white shirt and thirty years' experience in the electricity business, he was mostly curious. While critical incident indicator lights came on from time to time, actual critical incidents were very rare. A young technician replied, Says we have total breaker separation, MH-12. Dark, unmanned, and grimy, Algonquin Consolidated Substation 12, located in Harlem, the MH for Manhattan, was a major area substation. It received 138,000 volts and fed the juice through transformers, which stepped it down to 10% of that level, divided it up, and sent it on its way. Additional words now popped onto the big screen, glowing red beneath the time and the stark report of the critical failure. MH-12, offline. The supervisor typed on his computer, recalling the days when this work was done with radio and telephone and insulated switches amid a smell of oil and brass and hot bakelite. He read the dense, complicated scroll of text. He spoke softly, as if to himself. The breaker's opened. Why? The load's normal. Another message appeared. 
MH-12 offline, RR to affected service area from MH-17, MH-10, MH-13, NJ-18. We've got load rerouting, somebody called unnecessarily. In the suburbs and countryside, the grid is clearly visible. Those bare overhead high-tension wires and power poles and service lines running into your house. When a line goes down, there's little difficulty finding and fixing the problem. In many cities, though, like New York, the electricity flows underground in insulated cables. Because the insulation degrades after time and suffers groundwater damage, resulting in shorts and loss of service, power companies rely on double or even triple redundancy in the grid. When substation MH-12 went down, the computer automatically began filling customer demand by rerouting the juice from other locations. No dropouts, no brownouts, another tech called. Electricity in the grid is like water coming into a house from a single main pipe and flowing out through many open faucets. When one is closed, the pressure in the others increases. Electricity is the same, though it moves a lot more quickly than water, nearly 700 million miles an hour. And because New York City demanded a lot of power, the voltages, the electrical equivalent of water pressure, in the substations doing the extra work were running high. But the system was built to handle this, and the voltage indicators were still in the green. What was troubling the supervisor, though, was why the circuit breakers in MH-12 had separated in the first place. The most common reason for a substation's breakers to pop is either a short circuit or unusually high demand at peak times, early morning, both rush hours and early evening, or when the temperature soars and greedy air conditioners demand their juice. None of these was the case at 11.20.20.003 a.m. on this comfortable April day. Get a trouble man over to MH-12. Could be a bum cable or a short in the... Just then a second red light began to flash. Critical failure. NJ-18 offline. Another area substation located near Paramus, New Jersey, had gone down. It was one of those taking up the slack in Manhattan 12's absence. The supervisor made a sound, half laugh, half cough. A perplexed frown screwed into his face. What the hell's going on? The load's within tolerances. Sensors and indicators all functioning, one technician called. Scatter problem, the supervisor called. Algonquin's power empire was overseen by a sophisticated supervisory control and data acquisition program running on huge Unix computers. The legendary 2003 Northeast Blackout, the largest ever in North America, was caused in part by a series of computer software errors. Today's systems wouldn't let that disaster happen again, but that wasn't to say a different computer screw-up couldn't occur. I don't know, one of his assistants said slowly, but I'd think it'd have to be. Diagnostics say there's no physical problem with the lines or switchgear. The supervisor stared at the screen, waited for the next logical step, letting them know which new substation or stations would kick in to fill the gap created by the loss of NJ-18. But no such message appeared. The three Manhattan substations, 17, 10, and 13, continued alone in providing juice to two service areas of the city that would otherwise be dark. The SCADA program wasn't doing what it should have, bringing in power from other stations to help. 
Now the amount of electricity flowing into and out of each of those three stations was growing dramatically. The supervisor rubbed his beard and, after waiting futilely for another substation to come online, ordered his senior assistant, Manually move supply from Q14 into the eastern service area of MH12. Yes, sir. After a moment, the supervisor snapped, No, now. Hmm. I'm trying. Trying? What do you mean, trying? The task involved simple keyboard strokes. The switchgear's not responding. Impossible. The supervisor walked down several short steps to the technician's computer. He typed commands he knew in his sleep. Nothing. The voltage indicators were at the end of the green. Yellow loomed. This isn't good, somebody muttered. This is a problem. The supervisor ran back to his desk and dropped into his chair. His granola bar and Greek athlete cup fell to the floor. He ignored them. And then another domino fell. A third red dot, like a bullseye on a target, began to throb, and in its aloof manner the SCADA computer reported, Critical failure. MH-17 offline. Oh, not another one, somebody whispered. And as before, no other substation stepped up to help satisfy the voracious demands of New Yorkers for energy. Two substations were doing the work of five. The temperature of the electric wires into and out of those stations was growing, and the voltage level bars on the big screen were well into the yellow. MH12 offline, NJ18 offline, MH17 offline, RR to affected service areas from MH10, MH13. The supervisor snapped, Get more supply into those areas. I don't care how you do it, anywhere. A woman at a nearby control booth sat up fast. I've got 40K I'm running through feeder lines down from the Bronx. 40,000 volts wasn't much, and it would be tricky to move it through feeder lines, which were meant for about a third that much voltage. Somebody else was able to bring some juice down from Connecticut. The voltage indicator bars continued to rise, but more slowly now. Maybe they had this under control. More! But then the woman stealing power from the Bronx said in a choking voice, Wait, the transmission's reduced itself to 20,000. I don't know why. This was happening throughout the region. As soon as a tech was able to bring in a bit more current to relieve the pressure, the supply from another location dried up. And all of this drama was unfolding at breathtaking speeds. 700 million miles an hour. And then yet another red circle, another bullet wound. Critical failure, MH13 offline. A whisper, this can't be happening. MH12 offline, NJ18 offline, MH17 offline, MH13 offline, RR to affected service areas from MH10. This was the equivalent of a huge reservoir of water trying to shoot through a single tiny spigot, like the kind that squirts cold water out of a refrigerator door. The voltage surging into MH10, located in an old building on West 57th Street in the Clinton neighborhood of Manhattan, was four or five times normal load and growing. The circuit breakers would pop at any moment, averting an explosion and a fire, but returning a good portion of Midtown to colonial times. North seems to be working better. Try the North. Get some juice from the North. Try Massachusetts. I've got some. 50, 60K from Putnam. Good.
And then, oh, Jesus, Lord, somebody cried. The supervisor didn't know who it was. Everybody was staring at their screens, heads down, transfixed. What, he raged. I don't want to keep hearing that kind of thing. Tell me. The breaker settings in Manhattan 10. Look, the breakers. Oh, no. No. The circuit breakers in MH10 had been reset. They would now allow through their portal ten times the safe load. If the Algonquin Control Center couldn't reduce the pressure of the voltage assaulting the substation soon, the lines and switchgear inside the place would allow through a lethally high flood of electricity. The substation would explode. But before that happened, the juice would race through the distribution feeder lines into below-ground transformer boxes throughout the block south of Lincoln Center and into the spot networks and office buildings and big high-rises. Some breakers would cut the circuit, but some older transformers and service panels would just melt into a lump of conductive metal and let the current continue on its way, setting fires and exploding in arc flashes that would burn to death anybody near an appliance or wall outlet. For the first time, the supervisor thought, terrorists. It's a terror attack. He shouted, call Homeland Security and the NYPD and reset them. God damn it, reset the breakers. They're not responding. I'm locked out of MH10. How can you be fucking locked out? I don't... MH10? Jesus, if they are, get them out now. Substations were unmanned, but workers occasionally went inside for routine maintenance and repairs. Sure, okay. The indicator bars were now into the red. Sir, should we shed load? Grinding his teeth, the supervisor was considering this. Also known as a rolling blackout, shedding load was an extreme measure in the power business. Load was the amount of juice that customers were using. Shedding was a manual controlled shutdown of certain parts of the grid to prevent a larger crash of the system. It was a power company's last resort in the battle to keep the grid up and would have disastrous consequences in the densely populated portion of Manhattan that was at risk. The damage to computers alone would be in the tens of millions and it was possible that people would be injured or even lose their lives. 911 calls wouldn't get through. Ambulances and police cars would be stuck in traffic with stoplights out. Elevators would be frozen. There'd be panic. Muggings and looting and rapes invariably rose during a blackout, even in daylight. Electricity keeps people honest. Sir? the technician asked desperately. The supervisor stared at the moving voltage indicator bars. He grabbed his own phone and called his superior, a senior vice president at Algonquin. Herb, we have a situation. He briefed the man. How'd this happen? We don't know. I'm thinking terrorists. God, you called Homeland Security? Yeah, just now. Mostly we're trying to get more power into the affected areas. We're not having much luck. He watched the indicator bars continue to rise through the red. The vice president asked, Okay, recommendations? We don't have much choice. Shed load. A good chunk of the city will go black for at least a day. But I don't see any other options. With that much juice flowing in, the station will blow if we don't do something. His boss thought for a moment. There's a second transmission line running through Manhattan 10, right? The supervisor looked up at the board. A high-voltage cable went through the substation and headed west to deliver juice to parts of New Jersey. Yes, but it's not online, it's just running through a duct there. But could you splice into it and use that for supply to the diverted lines? 
Manually, I suppose, but that would mean getting people inside MH10, and if we can't hold the juice back until they're finished, it'll flash. That'll kill them all, or give them third degrees over their entire bodies. A pause. Hold on, I'm calling Jessen. Algonquin Consolidated CEO, also known privately as the All-Powerful. As he waited, the supervisor stared at the tech surrounding him. He kept staring at the board, too. The glowing red dots. Critical failure. Finally, the supervisor's boss came back on. His voice cracked. He cleared his throat and after a moment said, You're supposed to send some people in, manually splice into the line. That's what Jessen said? Another pause. Yes. The supervisor whispered, I can't order anybody in there. It's suicide. Then find some volunteers. Jessen said you are not, understand me, not to shed load under any circumstances. The driver eased the M70 bus through traffic toward the stop on 57th Street near where 10th Avenue blended into Amsterdam. He was in a pretty good mood. The new bus was a kneeling model which lowered to the sidewalk to make stepping aboard easier and featured a handicapped ramp, great steering, and most important, a rump-friendly driver's seat. Lord knew he needed that, spending eight hours a day in it. No interest in subways, the Long Island Railroad, or Metro North. No, he loved buses, despite the crazy traffic, the hostility, attitudes, and anger. He liked how democratic it was to travel by bus. You saw everybody from lawyers to struggling musicians to delivery boys. Cabs were expensive and stank. Subways didn't always go where you wanted to, and walking, well, this was Manhattan. Great if you had the time, but who did? Besides, he liked people, and he liked the fact that he could nod or smile or say hello to every single person who got on his vehicle. New Yorkers weren't, like some people said, unfriendly at all, just sometimes shy, insecure, cautious, preoccupied. But often all it took was a grin, a nod, a single word, and they were your new friend. And he was happy to be one. If only for six or seven blocks. The personal greeting also gave him a chance to spot the wackos, the drunks, the cluckheads, and tweakers, and decide if he needed to hit the distress button. This was, after all, Manhattan. Today was beautiful, clear, and cool. April, one of his favorite months. It was about 11.30 a.m., and the bus was crowded as people were heading east for lunch dates or errands on their hour off. Traffic was moving slowly as he nosed the huge vehicle closer to the stop, where four or five people stood beside a bus stop sign pole. He was approaching the stop and happened to look past the people waiting to get on board, his eyes taking in the old brown building behind the stop. An early 20th century structure, it had several gridded windows but was always dark inside. He'd never seen anybody going in or out. A spooky place, like a prison. On the front was a flaking sign in white paint on a blue background. Algonquin Consolidated Power and Light Company, Substation MH10 private property, danger, high voltage, trespass prohibited. He rarely paid attention to the place, but today something had caught his eye, something he believed out of the ordinary. Dangling from the window, about ten feet off the ground, was a wire about a half inch in diameter. 
it was covered with dark insulation up to the end. There, the plastic or rubber was stripped away, revealing silvery metal strands bolted to a fitting of some kind, a flat piece of brass. Damn big hunk of wire, he thought. And just hanging out the window. Was that safe? He braked the bus to a complete stop and hit the door release. The kneeling mechanism engaged, and the big vehicle dipped toward the sidewalk, the bottom metal stair inches from the ground. The driver turned his broad, ruddy face toward the door, which eased open with a satisfying hydraulic hiss. The folks began to climb on board. Morning, the driver said cheerfully. A woman in her eighties clutching an old shabby Bendel shopping bag nodded back and, using a cane, staggered to the rear, ignoring the empty seats in the front reserved for the elderly and disabled. How could you not just love New Yorkers? Then, sudden motion in the rearview mirror. Flashing yellow lights. A truck was speeding up behind him. Algonquin consolidated. Three workers stepped out and stood in a close group, talking among themselves. They held boxes of tools and thick gloves and jackets. They didn't seem happy as they walked slowly toward the building, staring at it, heads close together as they debated something. One of those heads was shaking ominously. Then the driver turned to the last passenger about to board, a young Latino clutching his metro card and pausing outside the bus. He was gazing at the substation, frowning. The driver noticed his head was raised as if he was sniffing the air. An acrid scent. Something was burning. The smell reminded him of the time that an electric motor in the wife's washing machine had shorted out and the insulation burned. Nauseating. A wisp of smoke was coming from the doorway of the substation. So that's what the Algonquin people were doing here. That'd be a mess. The driver wondered if it would mean a power outage and the stoplights would go out. That'd be it for him. The cross-town trip, normally twenty minutes, would be hours. Well, in any event, he'd better clear the area for the fire department. He gestured the passenger on board. Hey, mister, I gotta go. Come on, get on. As the passenger, still frowning at the smell, turned around and stepped onto the bus, the driver heard what sounded like pops coming from inside the substation. Sharp, almost like gunshots. Then a flash of light like a dozen suns filled the entire sidewalk between the bus and the cable dangling from the window. The passenger simply disappeared into a cloud of white fire. The driver's vision collapsed to gray afterimages. The sound was like a ripping crackle and shotgun blast at the same time, stunning his ears. Though belted into his seat, his upper body was slammed backward against the side window. Through numb ears, he heard the echoes of his passenger's screams. Through half-blinded eyes, he saw flames. As he began to pass out, the driver wondered if he himself might very well be the source of the fire. I have to tell you, he got out of the airport. He was spotted an hour ago in downtown Mexico City. No, Lincoln Rhyme said with a sigh, closing his eyes briefly. No. Amelia Sachs, sitting beside Rhyme's candy apple red storm arrow wheelchair, leaned forward and spoke into the black box of the speakerphone. What happened? She tugged at her long red hair and twined the strands into a severe ponytail. By the time we got the flight information from London, the plane had landed. The woman's voice blossomed crisply from the speakerphone. 
Seems he hid on a supply truck, snuck out through a service entrance. I'll show you the security tape we got from the Mexican police. I've got a link. Hold on a minute. Her voice faded as she spoke to her associate, giving him instructions about the video. The time was just past noon, and Rhyme and Sachs were in the ground floor parlor turned forensic laboratory of his townhouse on Central Park West, what had been a gothic Victorian structure in which had possibly resided, Rhyme liked to think, some very unquaint Victorians. Tough businessmen, dodgy politicians, high-class crooks, maybe an incorruptible police commissioner who liked to bang heads. Rhyme had written a classic book on old-time crime in New York and had used his sources to try to track the genealogy of his building, but he could find no pedigree. The woman they were speaking with was in a more modern structure, Rhyme had to assume, 3,000 miles away, the Monterey office of the California Bureau of Investigation. CBI agent Catherine Dance had worked with Rhyme and Sachs several years ago on a case involving the very man they were now closing in on. Richard Logan was, they believed, his real name, though Lincoln Rhyme thought of him mostly by his nickname, the Watchmaker. He was a professional criminal, one who planned his crimes with the precision he devoted to his hobby and passion, constructing timepieces. Rhyme and the killer had clashed several times. Rhyme had foiled one of his plans but failed to stop another. Still, Lincoln Rhyme considered the overall score a loss for himself since the watchmaker wasn't in custody. Rhyme leaned his head back in his wheelchair, picturing Logan. He'd seen the man in person, up close. Body lean, hair a dark boyish mop, eyes gently amused at being questioned by the police, never revealing a clue to the mass murder he was planning. His serenity seemed to be innate, and it was what Rhyme found to be perhaps the most disturbing quality of the man. Emotion breeds mistake and carelessness, and no one could ever accuse Richard Logan of being emotional. He could be hired for larceny or illegal arms or any other scheme that needed elaborate planning and ruthless execution, but was generally hired for murder, killing witnesses or whistleblowers or political or corporate figures. Recent intelligence revealed he'd taken a murder assignment in Mexico somewhere. Rhyme had called Dance, who had many contacts south of the border, and who had herself nearly been killed by the watchmaker's associate a few years earlier. Given that connection, Dansk was representing the Americans in the operation to arrest and extradite him, working with a senior investigator of the Ministerial Federal Police, a young, hard-working officer named Arturo Diaz. Early that morning, they'd learned the watchmaker would be landing in Mexico City. Dance had called Diaz, who scrambled to put extra officers in place to intercept Logan, but from Dance's latest communication, they hadn't been in time. You ready for the video? Dance asked. Go ahead. Rhyme shifted one of his few working fingers, the index finger of his right hand, and moved the electric wheelchair closer to the screen. He was a C4 quadriplegic, largely paralyzed from the shoulders down. On one of the several flat-screen monitors in the lab came a grainy night-vision image of an airport. Trash and discarded cartons, cans, and drums littered the ground on both sides of the fence in the foreground. A private cargo jet taxied into view, and just as it stopped, a rear hatch opened and a man dropped out. That's him, Dan said softly. I can't see clearly, Rhyme said. It's definitely Logan, Dan reassured. They got a partial print. You'll see in a minute.
The man stretched and then oriented himself. He slung a bag over his shoulder and, crouching, ran toward and hid behind a shed. A few minutes later, a worker came by, carrying a package the size of two shoeboxes. Logan greeted him, swapped the box for a letter-sized envelope. The worker looked around and walked away quickly. A maintenance truck pulled up. Logan climbed into the back and hid under some tarps. The truck disappeared from view. The plane, he asked? Continued on to South America on a corporate charter. The pilot and co-pilot claim they don't know anything about a stowaway. Of course, they're lying, but we don't have jurisdiction to question them. And the worker? Sachs asked. Federal police picked him up. He was just a minimum wage airport employee. He claimed somebody he didn't know told him he'd be paid a couple of hundred U.S. to deliver the box. The money was in the envelope. That's what they lifted the print from. What was in the package? Rhyme asked. He says he doesn't know, but he's lying, too. I saw the interview video. Our DEA people are interrogating him. I wanted to try to tease some information out of him myself, but it'll take too long for me to get the okay. Ryman Sachs shared a look. The teasing reference was a bit of modesty on Dance's part. She was a kinesics expert, body language, and one of the top interrogators in the country. But the testy relationship between the sovereign states in question was such that a California cop would have plenty of paperwork to negotiate before she could slip into Mexico for a formal interrogation, whereas the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency already had a sanctioned presence there. Rhyme asked, where was Logan spotted in the capital? A business district. He was trailed to a hotel, but he wasn't staying there. It was for a meeting, Diaz's men think. By the time they'd set up surveillance, he was gone. But all the law enforcement agencies and hotels have his picture now. Dance added that Diaz's boss, a very senior police official, would be taking over the investigation. It's encouraging that they're serious about the case. Yes, encouraging, Rhyme thought, but he felt frustrated, too. To be on the verge of finding the prey and yet to have so little control over the case... He found himself breathing more quickly. He was considering the last time he and the watchmaker had been up against each other. Logan had outthought everybody and easily killed the man he'd been hired to murder. Rhyme had had all the facts at hand to figure out what Logan was up to, yet he'd misread the strategy completely. By the way, he heard Sachs ask Catherine Dance, how was that romantic weekend away? This had to do, it seemed, with Dance's love interest. The single mother of two had been a widow for several years. We had a great time, the agent reported. Where did you go? Rhyme wondered why on earth Sachs was asking about Dance's social life. She ignored his impatient glance. Santa Barbara stopped at the Hearst Castle. Listen, I'm still waiting for you two to come out here. The children really want to meet you. Wes wrote a paper about forensics for school and mentioned you, Lincoln. His teacher used to live in New York and had read all about you. Yes, that'd be nice, Rhyme said, thinking exclusively about Mexico City. Sachs smiled at the impatience in his voice and told Dance they had to go. After disconnecting, she wiped some sweat from Rhyme's forehead. He hadn't been aware of the moisture. And they sat silent for a moment, looking out the window at the blur of a peregrine falcon sweeping into view. It veered up to its nest on Rhyme's second floor. Though not uncommon in major cities, plenty of fat, 
tasty pigeons for meals, these birds of prey usually nested higher. But for some reason, several generations of the birds had called Rhymes Townhouse home. He liked their presence. They were smart, fascinating to watch, and the perfect visitors, not demanding anything from him. A male voice intruded. Well, did you get him? Who? Rhymes snapped. And how heartful a verb is get? Tom Reston, Lincoln Rhymes' caregiver, said, The watchmaker. No, grumbled Rhyme. But you're close, aren't you? asked the trim man, wearing dark slacks, a businessman's starched yellow shirt, and a floral tie. Oh, close, Rhyme muttered. Close. That's very helpful. Next time you're being attacked by a mountain lion, Tom, how would you feel if the park ranger shot really close to it, as opposed to, oh, say, actually hitting it? Aren't mountain lions endangered? Tom asked, not even bothering with an ironic inflection. He was impervious to Rhyme's edge. He'd worked for the forensic detective for years, longer than many married couples had been together, and the aide was as seasoned as the toughest spouse. Huh, very funny. Endangered. Sachs walked around behind Rhyme's wheelchair, gripped his shoulders, and began an impromptu massage. Sachs was tall and in better shape than most NYPD detectives her age, and though arthritis often plagued her knees and lower extremities, her arms and hands were strong and largely pain-free. They wore their working clothes. Rhyme was in sweatpants, black, and a knit shirt of dark green. She had shed her navy blue jacket but was wearing matching slacks and a white cotton blouse, one button open at the collar, pearls present. Her Glock was high on her hip in a fast-draw polymer holster, and two magazines sat side by side in holsters of their own, along with a taser. Rhyme could feel the pulsing of her fingers. He had perfect sensation above where he'd sustained a nearly fatal spinal cord fracture some years ago, the fourth cervical vertebra. Although at one point he'd considered risky surgery to improve his condition, he'd opted for a different rehabilitative approach. Through an exhausting regimen of exercise and therapy, he'd managed to regain some use of his fingers and hand. He could also use his left ring finger, which had, for some reason, remained intact after the subway beam broke his neck. He enjoyed the fingers digging into his flesh. It was as if the small percentage of remaining sensation in his body was enhanced. He glanced down at his useless legs. He closed his eyes. Tom now looked him over carefully. You all right, Lincoln? All right? Aside from the fact that the perp I've been searching for for years slipped out of our grasp and is now hiding out in the second largest metropolitan area in this hemisphere, I'm just peachy. That's not what I'm talking about. You're not looking too good. You're right. Actually, I need some medicine. Medicine? Whiskey. I'd feel better with some whiskey. No, you wouldn't. Well, why don't we try an experiment? Science, Cartesian, rational, who can argue with that? I know how I feel now, then I'll have some whiskey and I'll report back to you. No, it's too early, Tom said matter-of-factly. It's afternoon, by a few minutes. God damn it. Rhyme sounded gruff as often, but in fact he was losing himself in Sax's massage. A few strings of red hair had escaped from her ponytail and hung tickling against his cheek. He didn't move away. Since he'd apparently lost the single malt battle, he was ignoring Tom, but the aide brought his attention around quickly by saying, When you were on the phone, Lon called. He did? 
Why didn't you tell me? You said you didn't want to be disturbed while you were talking to Catherine. Well, tell me now. He'll call back. Something about a case, a problem? Really? The watchmaker case receded somewhat at this news. Rhyme understood that there was another source of his bad mood, boredom. He'd just finished analyzing the evidence for a complicated organized crime case and was facing several weeks with little to do, so he was buoyed by the thought of another job. Like Sax's craving for speed, Rhyme needed problems, challenges, input. One of the difficulties with a severe disability that few people focus on is the absence of anything new. The same settings, the same people, the same activities, and the same platitudes, the same empty reassurances, the same reports from unemotional doctors. What had saved his life after his injury, literally since he'd been considering assisted suicide, were tentative steps back into his prior passion, using science to solve crimes. You could never be bored when you confronted mystery. Tom persisted. Are you sure you're up for it? You're looking a little pale. Haven't been to the beach lately, you know. All right, just checking. Oh, and Arlen Kapeski is coming by later. When do you want to see him? The name sounded familiar, but it left a vaguely troubling flavor in his mouth. Who? He's with that disability rights group. It's about that award you're being given. Today? Rhyme had a fuzzy recollection of some phone calls. If it wasn't about a case, he'd rarely paid much attention to the noise around him. You said today. You said you'd meet with him. Oh, I really need an award. What am I going to do with it? Paperweight? Does anybody you know ever use paperweights? Have you ever used a paperweight? Lincoln, it's being given to you for inspiring young people with disabilities. Nobody inspired me when I was young, and I turned out all right. Which wasn't completely true, the inspiration part. But Rhyme grew petty whenever distractions loomed, especially distractions involving visitors. A half hour is a half hour I don't have. Too late. He's already in town. Sometimes it was impossible to win against the aide. We'll see. Kapeski's not going to come here and cool his heels like some courtier waiting for an audience with the king. Rhyme liked that metaphor. But then all thoughts of awards and royalty vanished as Rhyme's phone blared and Detective Lieutenant Lon Salido's number showed up on caller ID. Rhyme used a working finger on his right hand to answer. Lon! Link, listen, here's the thing. He was harried, and to judge from the surround-sound acoustics piping through the speaker, apparently driving somewhere quickly. We may have a terrorist situation going on. Situation? That's not very specific. Okay, how's this? Somebody fucked with the power company, shot a 5,000-degree spark at a metro bus, and shot down the electric grid for six square blocks south of Lincoln Center. That's specific enough for you? The entourage arrived from downtown. Homeland Security's representative was a typically young but senior officer, probably born and bred among the country clubs of Connecticut or Long Island, though that was, for rhyme, merely a demographic observation and not necessarily a fault. The man's shine and sharp eyes belied the fact that he probably wouldn't quite know where he fit in in the hierarchy of law enforcement, but that was true of nearly everybody who worked for H.S. His name was Gary Noble. The Bureau was here, too, of course, 
in the incarnation of a special agent whom Ryman Salito worked with frequently, Fred Del Rey. FBI founder J. Edgar Hoover would have been dismayed at the African-American agent, only partly because his roots were clearly not in New England. Rather, the consternation would come from the agent's lack of Ninth Street style, a reference to FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. Del Rey donned a white shirt and tie only when his undercover assignments called for such an outfit, and he treated the garb like any other costume in his player's wardrobe. Today, he was wearing authentic Del Rey, a dark green plaid suit, the pink shirt of a devil-may-care Wall Street CEO, and an orange tie that Rhyme couldn't have thrown out fast enough. Del Rey was accompanied by his newly named boss, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the New York Office of the FBI, ASAC Tucker McDaniel, who'd begun his career in Washington, then taken assignments in the Middle East and South Asia. The ASAC was compactly built with thick, dark hair and a swarthy complexion, though with bright blue eyes that focused on you as if you were lying when you said hi. It was a helpful expression for a law enforcement agent and one that Rhyme affected himself as the occasion merited. The NYPD's chief presence was stout Lon Salito, in a gray suit and, unusual for him, powder blue shirt. The tie, splotchy by design, not spillage, was the only unwrinkled article of clothing swathing the man, probably a birthday present from live-in girlfriend Rachel or his son. The major case's detective was backed up by Sachs and Ron Pulaski, a blonde, eternally youthful officer from patrol who was officially attached to Salito but who unofficially worked mostly with Ryman Sachs on the crime scene side of investigations. Pulaski was in a standard dark blue NYPD uniform, T-shirt visible in the V at his throat. Both of the feds, McDaniel and Noble, had heard about Rhyme, of course, but neither had met him, and they exuded various degrees of surprise, sympathy, and discomfort seeing the paralyzed forensic consultant who tooled around the lab deftly in his wheelchair. The novelty and uneasiness soon wore off, though, as they usually did with all but the most ingratiating guests, and soon they were struck by the more bizarre presence here, a wainscoted, crown-molded parlor chock-a-block with equipment that a crime scene unit in a medium-sized town might envy. After introductions, Noble took the point position, Homeland Security carting the bigger umbrella. Mr. Rhyme? Lincoln, he corrected. Rhyme grew irritated when anyone deferred to him, and he considered the use of his surname a subtle way of patting him on the head and saying, Poor thing, sorry you're confined to a wheelchair for the rest of your life, so we'll be extra special polite. Sachs caught the weight behind his correction and rolled her eyes in a gentle arc. Rhyme tried not to smile. Sure, Lincoln, then. Noble cleared his throat. Here's the scenario. What do you know about the grid, the electricity grid? Not much, Rhyme admitted. He'd studied science in college, but never paid much attention to electricity, other than electromagnetics appearance and physics as one of the four fundamental forces in nature, along with gravity and the weak and the strong nuclear forces. But that was academic. On a practical level, Rhyme's main interest in electricity involved making sure enough of it got pumped into the townhouse to power the equipment in his lab here. It was extremely thirsty, and he twice had to have the place rewired to bring in additional amperage to support the load. Rhyme was very aware, too, that he was alive and functioning now solely because of electricity. 
the ventilator that had kept oxygen pumping through his lungs right after the accident, and now the batteries in his wheelchair and the current controlled by the touchpad and voice-activated ECU, his environmental control unit. The computer, too, of course. He wouldn't have had much of a life without wires. Probably no life at all. Noble continued, The basic scenario is our unsub got into one of the power company's substations and ran a wire outside the building. Unknown subject singular, Rhyme asked. We don't know yet. Wire outside, okay. And then got into the computer that controls the grid. He manipulated it to send more voltage through the substation than it was meant to handle. Noble fiddled with cufflinks in the shape of animals. And the electricity jumped, the FBI's McDaniel put in. It was basically trying to get into the ground. It's called an arc flash, an explosion, like a lightning bolt. A 5,000-degree spark. The ASAC added, It's so powerful it creates plasma. That's a state of matter that isn't gas, liquid, or solid, Rhyme said impatiently. Exactly. A fairly small arc flash has the explosive power of a pound of TNT, and this one wasn't small. And the bus was his target? Rhyme asked. Seems so. Salito said, but they have rubber tires. Vehicles are the safest place to be in a lightning storm. I saw that someplace, some show. True, McDaniel said, but the unsub had it all figured out. It was a kneeling bus. Either he was counting that the lowered step would touch the sidewalk or hoping somebody would have one foot on the ground and one on the bus. That'd be enough for the arc to hit it. Noble again twisted a tiny silver mammal on his cuff. But the timing was off, or his aim, or something. The spark hit the sign pole next to the bus, killed one passenger, deafened some people nearby, and dinged a few with glass, started a fire. If it had hit the bus directly, the casualties would have been a lot worse. Half of them dead, I'd guess, or with third-degree burns. Lon mentioned a blackout, Rhyme said. McDaniel eased back into the conversation. The unsub used the computer to shut down four other substations in the area, so all the juice was flowing through the one on 57th Street. As soon as the arc happened, that substation went offline, but Algonquin got the others up and running again. Right now, about six blocks in Clinton are out. Didn't you see it on the news? I don't watch much news, Rhyme said. Sachs asked McDaniel, The driver or anybody see anything? Nothing helpful. There were some workers there. They'd gotten orders from the CEO of Algonquin to go inside and try to reroute the lines or something. Thank God they didn't go in before the arc happened. There was nobody inside? Fred Delray asked. The agent seemed a bit out of the loop, and Rhyme guessed there hadn't been time for McDaniel to fully brief his team. No, substations are mostly just equipment. Nobody inside except for routine maintenance or repairs. How was the computer hacked? Lancelito asked, sitting noisily in a wicker chair. Gary Noble said, We aren't sure. We're running the scenarios now. Our white hat hackers have tried to run a mock terrorist scenario and they can't get inside. But you know how it works. The bad guys are always one step ahead of us, tech-wise. Ron Pulaski asked, Anybody take credit? Not yet, Noble replied. Rhyme asked, then why terrorism? I'm thinking it's a good way to shut down alarms and security systems. Any murders or burglaries reported? Not so far, Salito pointed out. A couple of reasons we think it's terrorists. 
McDaniel said. Our obscure pattern and relationship profile software suggests so, for one thing. And right after it happened, I had our people go through signals from Maryland. He paused, as if warning that nobody here should repeat what he was about to say. Rhyme deduced the FBI man was referring to the netherworld of intelligence, government snooping agencies that might not technically have jurisdiction in the country, but who can maneuver through loopholes to keep on top of possible malfeasance within the NSA. The National Security Agency, the world's best eavesdroppers, happened to be in Maryland. A new SIGINT system came up with some interesting hits. SIGINT, Signal Intelligence, monitoring cell phones, satellite phones, email, seemed an appropriate approach when confronted with somebody using electricity to stage an attack. Picked up references to what we think is a new terror group operating in the area, never cataloged before. Who? Salito asked. The name starts with Justice and has the word for in it, McDaniel explained. Justice for... Sachs asked, nothing else? No. Maybe justice for Allah, justice for the oppressed, anything. We don't have a clue. The words in English, though, Rhyme asked. Not Arabic or Somali or Indonesian? Right, McDaniel said. But I'm running multi-language and dialect monitoring programs and all communications we can pick up. Legally, Noble added quickly, that we can pick up legally. But most of their communications take place in the cloud zone, McDaniel said. He didn't explain this. Um, what's that, sir? Ron Pulaski asked. A variation of what Rhyme was about to, though in a much less deferential manner. Cloud zone? The ASAC responded. The phrase comes from the latest approach to computing, where your data and programs are stored on servers elsewhere, not on your own computer. I wrote an analysis paper on it. I'm using the term to mean new communications protocols. There's very little standard cell phone and email use among the negative players. People of interest are exploiting new techniques like blogs and Twitter and Facebook to send messages. Also embedding codes and music in video uploads and downloads. And personally, I think they've got some new systems altogether. Different types of modified phones, radios with alternative frequencies. The cloud zone. Negative players. Why do you think Justice 4 is behind the attack? Sachs asked. We don't necessarily, Noble said. McDaniel filled in. Just there were some SIGINT hits about monetary dispersals over the past few days and about some movement of personnel and the sentence, it's going to be big. So when the attack happened today, we thought, maybe. And Earth Day's coming up, Noble pointed out. Rhyme wasn't exactly sure what Earth Day was and didn't have an opinion about it one way or the other, except recognizing with some petulance that it was like other holidays and events. Crowds and protesters clogging the streets and depleting the resources of the NYPD, which he might otherwise need to run cases. Noble said, might be more than a coincidence. Attack on the grid the day before Earth Day? The president's taking an interest. The president? Salito asked. Right, he's at some renewable energy summit outside of D.C. Salito mused, somebody making a point. Eco-terror. He didn't see much of that in New York City. Logging and strip mining weren't big industries here. Justice for the environment, maybe, Sachs suggested. But, McDaniel said, there's another wrinkle. 
One of the SIGINT hits correlated justice for with the name Raman. No family name. We've got eight unaccounted for Ramans on our Islamist terror watch list. Could be one of them, we're thinking, but we don't know which one. Noble had abandoned the bears or manatees on his cuffs and was now playing with a nice pen. We were thinking at Homeland that Raman could be part of a sleeper cell that's been here for years, maybe from around the time of 9-11, staying clear of an Islamist lifestyle, sticking with moderate mosques, avoiding Arabic. McDaniel added, I've got one of my T&C teams up from Quantico. T&C? Rhyme asked, peeved. Tech and communications to run the surveillance, and warrant specialists to get taps if we need them. Two DOJ lawyers, and we're getting 200 extra agents. Rhyme and Salito glanced each other's way. This was a surprisingly substantial task force for a single incident that wasn't part of an ongoing investigation, and mobilized with incredible speed. The attack had happened less than two hours ago. The bureau man noticed their reaction. We're convinced there's a new profile to terrorism, so we've got a new approach to fighting it, like the drones in the Middle East and Afghanistan. You know the pilots are next to a strip mall in Colorado Springs or Omaha. The cloud zone. Now TNC's in place, so we'll be able to hook more signals soon. But we'll still need traditional approaches. A look around the lab, meaning forensics, Rhyme supposed. And then the ASAC looked toward Del Rey. And street-level work, though Fred tells me he hasn't had much luck. Del Rey's talent as an undercover op was exceeded only by his skills as a handler of CIs, confidential informants. Since 9-11, he'd curried favor with a large group of CIs in the Islamic community and taught himself Arabic, Indonesian, and Farsi. He worked regularly with the NYPD's impressive anti-terror unit, but the agent confirmed his boss's comment. Grim-faced, he said, haven't heard anything about Justice 4 or Raman. Ran it past my boys in Brooklyn, Jersey, Queens, Manhattan. Just happened, Salito reminded. Right, McDaniel said slowly. Of course, something like this would have been planned for, what would you guess, a month? Noble said, I'd imagine at least. See, that's this damn cloud zone. Rhyme could also hear McDaniel's criticism of Fred Del Rey. The point of informants was to learn about things before they happened. Well, keep at it, Fred, McDaniel said. You're doing a good job. Sure, Tucker. Noble had given up fidgeting with the pen firmly. He was consulting his watch. So Homeland will coordinate with Washington and the State Department, embassies too, if we need to. But the police and the bureau will run the case like any other. Now, Lincoln, everybody knows your expertise with crime scene work, so we're hoping you'll work point on analysis of the trace. We're assembling a CS team now. They should be on location at the substation in 20 minutes, 30 tops. Sure, we'll help, Rhyme said. But we run the entire scene, entrance to exit, and all secondary scenes, not just trace, the whole ball of string. He glanced at Salito, who nodded firmly, meaning, I'm backing you up. In the ensuing awkward moment of silence, everybody was aware of the subtext. Who would ultimately be in charge of the investigation? The nature of police work nowadays was such that whoever controlled the forensics basically ran the case. 
This was a practical consequence of the advancements in crime scene investigative techniques in the past 10 years. Simply by searching the scenes and analyzing what was found, forensic investigators had the best insights into the nature of the crime and possible suspects and were the first to develop leads. The Triumvirate, Noble and McDaniel on the federal side and Salito for the NYPD, would be making strategic decisions. But if they accepted Rhyme as key in the crime scene operation, he would be, in effect, the lead investigator. This made sense. He'd solved crimes in the city longer than any of them had, and since there were no suspects or other significant leads at this point, other than evidence, a forensic specialist was the way to go. Most important, Rhyme wanted the case bad, the boredom factor. Okay, some ego, too. So he offered the best argument he could. He said nothing. Just settled his eyes on the face of the Homeland Security man, Gary Noble. McDaniel fidgeted a bit. It was his crime scene people who would be demoted, and Noble lobbed a glance toward him, asking, What do you think, Tucker? I know Mr. Rhymes. I know Lincoln's work. I don't have a problem with him running the scene, provided there's 100% coordination with us. Of course. And we've got somebody present. And we get the findings as soon as possible. He looked into Rhymes' eyes, nodded his body. The most important thing is fast response time. Meaning, Rhymes suspected, can somebody in your condition deliver? Salido stirred, but this wasn't a crip put-down. It was a legitimate question, one that Rhyme himself would have asked. He answered, Understand. Good, I'll tell my evidence response people to help however you want, the ASAC assured him. Noble said, Now, for the press, we're trying to downplay the terror angle at this point. We'll be making it sound like an accident. But the news leaked that it may be more than that. People are freaked out. I'll say they are, McDaniel nodded. I've got monitors in my office checking internet traffic, huge increases in hits and search engines for electrocution, arc flash, and blackouts. YouTube viewings of arc flash videos are through the roof. I went online myself. They're scary as hell. One minute there are two guys working on an electric panel, then all of a sudden there's a flash that fills the whole screen and a guy's on his back with half his body on fire. And, Noble said, people are real nervous that arc flashes might happen someplace other than a substation, like their houses and offices. Sachs asked, can they? McDaniel apparently had not learned all there was to know about arc flashes. He admitted, I think so, but I'm not sure how big the current has to be. His eyes strayed at a 220 volts outlet nearby. Well, I think we better get moving, Rhyme said with a glance at Sachs. She headed for the door. Ron, come with me. Pulaski joined her. A moment later, the door closed, and soon he heard the big engine of her car fire up. Now, one thing to keep in mind, one scenario we ran on the computers, McDaniel added, was that the unsub was just testing the waters, checking out the grid as a possible terror target. It was pretty clumsy and only one person died. We fed that into the system, and the algorithms are suggesting that they might try something different next. There's even a potential that this was a singularity. A, Rhyme asked, exasperated at the language. Singularity, a one-time occurrence. Our threat analysis software assigned a 55% non-repeatability factor to the incident. 
That's not the worst in the world. Rhyme said, but isn't that just another way of saying there's a 45% chance that somebody else somewhere in New York City is going to get electrocuted? And it could be happening right now. Algonquin Consolidated Power Substation MH10 was a miniature medieval castle in a quiet area south of Lincoln Center. It was made of unevenly cut limestone, dingy and pitted from decades of New York City pollution and grime. The cornerstone was worn, but you could easily read 1928. It was just before 2 p.m. when Amelia Sachs skidded her marooned Ford Torino Cobra up to the curb in front of the place, behind the ruined bus. The car and its bubbling exhaust drew glances of curiosity or admiration from bystanders, cops, and firemen. She climbed out of the driver's seat, tossed an NYPD placard on the dash, and stood with hands on hips, surveying the scene. Ron Pulaski exited from the passenger door and slammed it with a solid clunk. Sachs regarded the incongruity of the setting. Modern buildings, at least twenty or so stories high, bracketed the substation, which for some reason had been designed with turrets. The stone was streaked with white, thanks to the resident pigeons, a number of which had returned after the excitement. The windows were of jaundiced glass and covered with bars painted black. The thick metal door was open and the room inside was dark. With a bleat of an electronic siren, a rapid-response vehicle from the NYPD crime scene unit eased into the area. The RRV parked, and three technicians from the main operation in Queens climbed out. Sachs had worked with them on a number of occasions, and she nodded to the Latino man and the Asian woman under the direction of a senior officer, Detective Gretchen Saloff. Sachs nodded to the detective, who waved a greeting, and with a somber look at the front of the substation walked to the rear of the large van, where the newly arrived officers began to unload equipment. Sachs's attention then moved to the sidewalk and street, cordoned off with yellow tape, beyond which a crowd of fifty or so watched the action. The bus that had been the object of the attack sat in front of the substation, empty, lopsided. The right tires were deflated. Near the front, the paint was scorched. Half the windows were gray and opaque. An EMS medic approached, a stocky African-American woman, and nodded. Sachs said, Hi. The woman gave a tentative nod of greeting. Medtex had witnessed just about all the carnage you could see, but she was shaken. Detective, you better take a look. Sachs followed her to the ambulance where a body lay in a gurney, waiting transport to the morgue. It was covered with a dark green waxy tarp. Was the last passenger, looks like. We thought we could save him, but we only got him this far. Electrocuted? You better see, she whispered, and lifted the covering. Sachs froze as the smell of burned skin and hair rose, and she gazed at the victim, a Latino in a business suit, or what was left of one. His back and much of the right side of his body was a mix of skin and cloth from the burn. She guessed second and third degree, but that wasn't what unsettled her so much. She'd seen bad burns, accidental and intentional, in her line of work. The most horrifying sight was in his flesh, exposed when the EMS team had cut away the cloth of his suit. She was looking at dozens of smooth puncture wounds which covered his body. It was as if he'd been hit by a blast from a huge shotgun. Most of them, the medic said, entrance and exit. 
They went all the way through? What had caused that? Don't know. Never seen anything like it all my years. And Sachs realized something else. The wounds were all distinct and clearly visible. There's no blood. Whatever it was cauterized the wounds. That's why... Her voice went soft. That's why he stayed conscious for as long as he did. Sachs couldn't imagine the pain. How? she asked, half to herself. And then she got the answer. Amelia, Ron Pulaski called. She glanced toward him. The bus sign pole, take a look. Brother. Jesus, she muttered, and walked closer to the edge of the crime scene tape. About six feet from the ground, a hole had been blasted clean through the metal pole, five inches wide. The metal had melted like plastic under a blowtorch. She then focused on the windows of the bus in a delivery truck parked nearby. She thought the glass was frosted from the fire, but no, small bits of shrapnel, the same that had killed the passenger, had hit the vehicles. The sheet metal skins were also punctured. Look, she whispered, pointing at the sidewalk and the facade of the substation. A hundred tiny craters had been dug into the stone. Was it a bomb? Pulaski asked. Maybe the respondings missed it. Sachs opened a plastic bag and removed blue latex gloves. Pulling them on, she bent down and collected a small disc of metal shaped like a teardrop at the base of the post. It was so hot it softened the glove. When she realized what it was, she shivered. What's that? Pulaski asked. The arc flash melted the pole. She looked around and saw a hundred or more drops on the ground or sticking to the side of the bus, buildings, and nearby cars. That's what had killed the young passenger. A shower of molten metal drops flying through the air at a thousand feet a second. The young officer exhaled slowly. Getting hit by something like that, burning right through you. Sachs shivered again at the thought of the pain and at the thought of how devastating the results of the attack might have been. This portion of street was relatively empty. Had the substation been closer to the center of Manhattan, easily ten or fifteen passers-by would have died. Sachs looked up and found herself staring at the unsub's weapon. From one of the windows overlooking 57th Street, about two feet of thick wire dangled. It was covered in black insulation, but the end was stripped away, and the bare cable was bolted to a scorched brass plate. It looked industrial and mundane and not at all the sort of thing that could have produced such a terrible explosion. Sachs and Pulaski joined the cluster of two dozen Homeland Security, FBI, and NYPD agents and officers at the FBI's command post van. Some were in tactical gear, some in crime scene coveralls. Others just suits or regulation uniforms. They were dividing up the labor. They'd be canvassing for witnesses and checking for post-incident bombs or other booby traps, a popular terrorist technique. A solemn, lean-faced man in his fifties stood with his arms crossed, staring at the substation. He wore an Algonquin consolidated badge on a chain around his neck. He was the senior company representative here, a field supervisor in charge of this portion of the grid. Sachs asked him to describe what Algonquin had learned about the event in detail, and he gave her an account, which she jotted into her notebook. Security cameras? 
The skinny man replied, Sorry, no, we don't bother. The doors are multiple locked, and there's nothing inside to steal, really. Anyways, all that juice, it's sort of like a guard dog, a big one. Sachs asked, How do you think he got in? The door was locked when we got here. They're on number pad locks. Who has the codes? All the employees. But he didn't get in that way. The locks have a chip that keeps records of when they're opened. These haven't been accessed for two days. And that, he pointed to the wire dangling from the window, wasn't there then. He had to break in some other way. She turned to Pulaski. When you're finished out here, check around back, the windows and roof. She asked the Algonquin worker, underground access? The field supervisor said, not that I know of. The electric lines into and out of this station come through ducts nobody could fit in, but there could be other tunnels I don't know about. Check it out anyway, Ron. Sachs then interviewed the driver of the bus who'd been treated for glass cuts and a concussion. His vision and hearing had been temporarily damaged, but he'd insisted on staying to help the police however he could, which wasn't very much. The round man described being curious about the wire protruding from the window. He'd never seen it before. Smelling smoke, hearing pops from inside, then the terrifying spark. So fast, he whispered. Never seen anything that fast in my life. He'd been slammed against the window and woke up ten minutes later. He fell silent, gazing at his destroyed bus, his expression reflecting betrayal and mourning. Sachs then turned to the agents and officers present and said she and Pulaski were going to run the scene. She wondered if word really had come down from the FBI's Tucker McDaniel that this was kosher. It wasn't unheard of for senior people in law enforcement to smilingly agree with you and then intentionally forget the conversation had ever taken place but the federal agents had indeed been told. Some seemed irritated that the NYPD was taking this pivotal role, but others, the FBI's evidence response team mostly, didn't seem to mind, and indeed regarded Sachs with admiring curiosity. She was, after all, part of the team headed up by the legendary Lincoln Rhyme. Turning toward Pulaski, she said, Let's get to work. Sachs walked toward the RRV, binding her crimson hair into a bun to suit up. Pulaski hesitated and glanced at the hundred dots of cooling metal discs on the sidewalk and lodged against the front of the building, then at the stiff wire hanging from the window. They did shut off the power in there, didn't they? Sachs just motioned him to follow her. Wearing drab, dark blue Algonquin consolidated power overalls, a baseball-style cap without logo and safety glasses, the man busied himself at the service panel in the back of the health club in the Chelsea district of Manhattan. As he did his work, mounting equipment and stripping, connecting, and snipping wires, he thought about the attack that morning. The news was all over the incident. One man was killed and several injured this morning when an overload in a power company substation in Manhattan produced a huge spark that jumped from the station to a bus sign pole, narrowly missing an MTA bus. It was like, you know, a lightning bolt, one witness, a passenger on the bus reported. Just filled the whole sidewalk, it blinded me, and that sound, I can't describe it, it was like this loud growl, then it exploded. I'm afraid to go near anything that's got electricity in it. I'm really freaked out. I mean, anybody who saw that thing is freaked out. 
You're not alone, the man thought. People have been conscious of and awed and frightened by electricity for more than 5,000 years. The word itself came from the Greek for amber, a reference to the solidified tree resin that the ancients would rub to create static charges. The numbing effects of electricity created by eels and fish in the rivers and off the coasts of Egypt, Greece, and Rome were described at length in scientific writings well before the Christian era. His thoughts turned to water creatures at the moment, since, as he worked, he furtively watched five people swimming slow laps in the club's pool. Three women and two men, all of retirement age. One particular fish he'd come to be fascinated with was the torpedo ray, which gave its name to the weapons fired by submarines. The Latin word torpore, to stiffen or paralyze, was the source of the name. The ray had, in effect, two batteries in its body made up of hundreds of thousands of gelatinous plates. These generated electricity, which a complicated array of nerves transported through its body like wires. The current was used for defense, but also offensively for hunting. Rays would lie in wait and then use a charge to numb their next meal or sometimes kill it outright. Larger rays could generate up to 200 volts and deliver more amps than an electric drill. Pretty fascinating. He finished rigging the panel and regarded his job. Like linemen and master electricians all over the world, he felt a certain pride in the neatness. He'd come to feel that working with electricity was more than a trade. It was a science and an art. Closing the door, he walked to the far side of the club, near the men's locker room. And, out of sight, he waited. Like a torpedo ray. This neighborhood, the far west side, was residential. No workers were getting their jogs or swims or squash games in now, early afternoon, though the place would fill up after working hours with hundreds of locals eager to sweat away the tensions of the day. But he didn't need a large crowd, not at the moment. That would come later. So people would think he was simply another worker and ignore him. He turned his attention to a fire control panel and took the cover off, examining the guts without much interest thinking again about electric rays. Those that lived in salt water were wired in parallel circuits and produced lower voltage because seawater was a better conductor than fresh, and the jolt didn't need to be so powerful to kill their prey. Electric rays that inhabited rivers and lakes, on the other hand, were wired in series and produced higher voltage to compensate for the lower conductivity of fresh water. This to him was not only fascinating, but was relevant at the moment for this test about the conductivity of water. He wondered if he'd made the calculations right. He had to wait for only ten minutes before he heard footsteps and saw one of the lap swimmers, a balding man in his sixties, padding by on slippers. He entered the showers. The man in the overalls snuck a peek at the swimmer, turning the faucet on and stepping under the stream of steaming water, unaware that he was being studied. Three minutes, five, lathering, washing. Growing impatient because of the risk of detection, gripping the remote control, similar to a large car key fob, the man in the overalls felt his shoulder muscles stiffening. Torpore. He laughed silently and relaxed. Finally, the club member stepped out of the shower and toweled off. He pulled his robe on and then stepped back into the slippers. 
He walked to the door leading to the locker room and took the handle. The overalls man pressed two buttons on the remote simultaneously. The elderly man gave a gasp and froze, then stepped back, staring at the handle. Looking at his fingers and quickly touching the handle once more. Foolish, of course. You're never faster than electricity. But there was no shock this time, and the man was left to consider if maybe it was a burr of sharp metal, or maybe even a painful jolt of arthritis in his fingers that he'd felt. In fact, the trap had contained only a few milliamps of juice. He wasn't here to kill anyone. This was simply an experiment to tell two things. First, would the remote control switchgear he'd created work at this distance, through concrete and steel? It had, fine. And second, what exactly was the effect of water on conductivity? This was the sort of thing that safety engineers talked and wrote about all the time, but that no one had ever quantified in any practical sense. Practical meaning, how little juice did one need to stun somebody wearing damp leather footgear into fibrillation and death? The answer was pretty damn little. Good. Freaked me out. The man in the overalls headed down the stairwell and out the back door. He thought again about fish and electricity. This time, though, not the creation of juice, but the detection of it. Sharks, in particular. They had, literally, a sixth sense. The astonishing ability to perceive the bioelectrical activity within the body of prey miles away, long before they could see it. He glanced at his watch and supposed the investigation at the substation was well underway. It was unfortunate for whoever was looking into the incident there that human beings didn't have a shark's sixth sense, just as it would soon be unfortunate for many other people in the poor city of New York. Sachs and Pulaski dressed in hooded baby blue Tyvek jumpsuits, masks, booties, and safety glasses. As Rhyme had always instructed, they each wrapped a rubber band around the feet to make differentiating their footprints from the others easier. Then, encircling her waist with a belt, to which were attached her radio-video transmitter and weapon, Sack stepped over the yellow tape, the maneuver sending some jolts of pain through her arthritic joints. On humid days, or after a bout of running, a tough scene, or a foot pursuit, the knees or hips screaming, she harbored secret envy of Lincoln Rhyme's numbness. She'd never utter the thought aloud, of course, never even gave the crazy idea more than a second or two in her mind, but there it was, advantages in all conditions. She paused on the sidewalk, all by herself within the deadly perimeter. When Rhyme had been head of investigation resources, the outfit at NYPD in charge of crime scenes, he ordered his forensic people to search alone unless the scene was particularly large. He did this because you tended psychologically to be less conscientious with other searchers present, since you were aware there was always a backup to find something you missed. The other problem was that just as criminals left behind evidence, crime scene searchers, however swaddled in protective gear, did too. This contamination could ruin the case. The more searchers, the greater that risk. She looked into the gaping black doorway, smoke still escaping, and then considered the gun on her hip. Metal. The lines are dead. Well, get going, she told herself. The sooner you walk the grid after a crime, the better the quality of the evidence. 
Dots of sweat full of helpful DNA evaporated and became impossible to spot. Valuable fibers and hairs blew away, and irrelevant ones floated into the scene to confuse and mislead. She slipped the microphone into her ear, inside the hood, and adjusted the stock mic. She clicked the transmitter at her side and heard Rhyme's voice through the headset. You there, Sax? Are... Okay, you're online. Was wondering. What's that? He asked. He was seeing the same thing she was, thanks to a small, high-definition video camera on a headband. She realized she was unintentionally looking at the hole burned into the pole. She explained to him what had happened, the spark, the molten raindrops. Rhyme was silent for a moment, then he said, That's quite a weapon. Well, let's get going. Walk the grid. There were several ways to search crime scenes. One popular approach was to begin in the outside corner and walk in an increasingly smaller concentric circle until you reached the center. But Lincoln Rhyme preferred the grid pattern. He sometimes told students to think of walking the grid as if mowing a lawn, only doing so twice. You walked along a straight line down one side of the scene to the other, then turned around, stepped a foot or so to the left or right, and went back in the direction you'd just come. Then, once you'd finished, you turned perpendicular to the lines you first walked and started all over again, doing the same back and forth. Rhyme insisted on this redundancy because the first search of a scene was crucial. If you did a cursory examination initially, you subtly convinced yourself that there was nothing to be found. Subsequent searches were largely useless. Sachs reflected on the irony. She was about to walk the grid in part of a very different grid. She'd have to share that with Rhyme, but later. Now she needed to concentrate. Crime scene work was a scavenger hunt. The goal was simple, to find something, anything, left behind by the perp, and something would have been left behind. The French criminalist Edmond Lacard, nearly a hundred years earlier, had said that whenever a crime occurred, there was a transfer of some evidence between the perpetrator and the crime scene or the victim. It might be virtually impossible to see, but it was there to find if you knew how to look and if you were patient and diligent. Amelia Sachs now began the search, starting outside the substation with the weapon, the dangling cable. Looks like he, or they, Rhyme corrected through the headset. If Justice Four is behind this, they might have a sizable membership. Good point, Rhyme. He was making sure she didn't fall into the number one problem crime scene searchers suffered from. Failure to keep an open mind. A body, blood, and a hot pistol suggested that the victim was shot to death. But if you got it into your head that that was the case, you might miss the knife that was actually used. She continued, Well, he or they rigged it from inside, but I'd think he had to be outside here on the sidewalk at some point to check distances and angles. To aim it at the bus? Exactly. Okay, keep going, the sidewalk then. She did, staring at the ground. Cigarette butts, beer caps, nothing near the door, the window with the cable, though. Don't bother with them. He's not going to be smoking or drinking on the job. He's too smart, considering how he put this whole thing together. But there'd be some trace where he stood, close to the building. There's a ledge, see it? She was looking down at a low stone shelf about three feet above the sidewalk. 
The top was set with spikes to keep pigeons and humans from perching there, but you could use it as a step if you wanted to reach something in the window. Got some footprints on the ledge, not enough for electrostatic. Let's see. She bent her head down and leaned forward. He was looking at what she was, shapes that could be toe marks of shoes close to the building. You can't get prints? No, not clear enough. But looking at them, I'd say they're probably men's. Wide, square toes, but that's all I can see. No soles or heels. But it tells us that if there's a they involved, it was probably just a he rigging the trap outside. She continued to examine the sidewalk and found no items of physical evidence that seemed relevant. Get trays, Sachs, and then search inside the substation. At her instruction, the other two techs from Queens set up powerful halogen lights just inside the door. She took pictures and then collected trace on the sidewalk and the ledge near the cable. And don't forget, Ryan began, substrata? Ah, one step ahead of me, Sax. Not really, she reflected, since he'd been her mentor for years, and if she hadn't picked up his procedures for walking the grid by now, she had no business in crime scene work. She now moved to an area just outside the perimeter and took a second rolling. Substrata, control samples to compare to the first. Any difference between what was collected at some distance from the scene and at the spot where the unsub was known to have stood might be unique to him or his dwelling. Might not, of course, but that was the nature of crime scene work. Nothing was ever certain, but you did what you could, you did what you had to do. Sachs handed off the bagged evidence to the technicians. She waved to the Algonquin supervisor she'd spoken to earlier. The field supervisor, just as solemn as before, hurried over. Yes, detective? I'm going to search inside now. Can you tell me exactly what to look for, how he rigged the cable? I need to find where he stood, what he touched. Let me find somebody who does regular maintenance here. He looked over the workers. Then he called to another man in dark blue Algonquin consolidated power overalls, a yellow hard hat. The worker tossed aside his cigarette and joined them. The field supervisor introduced them and told him Sachs's request. Yes, ma'am, he said, his eyes leaving the substation for an excursion across Sachs's chest, even though her figure was largely hidden by her billowy blue Tyvek jumpsuit. She thought about glancing down at his excessive belly, but of course she didn't. Dogs pee where you don't want them to. You can't correct them all the time. She asked, I'll be able to see where he attached the cable to the power source? Everything will be in the open, yeah, the man told her. I'd think he'd connect close to the breakers. They're on the main floor. That'll be on the right side when you get in there. Ask him if the line was live when the unsub rigged it, Rhyme said into her ear. That'll tell us something about the perp skill. She did. Oh, yeah, he tapped into a hotline. Sachs was shocked. How could he do that? Wore PPE, personal protective equipment, and made sure he was insulated pretty damn good on top of that. Rhyme added, I've got another question for him. Ask him how he gets any work done if he spent so much time staring at women's breasts. She stifled a smile. But as she walked toward the entrance, traipsing along the sidewalk over the molten dots, all humor vanished. She paused, turned back to the supervisor. Just confirming one last time, no power, right? 
She nodded at the substation. The lines are dead. Oh, yeah. Sax turned. Then he added, Except for the batteries. Batteries? She stopped and looked back. The supervisor explained, That's what operates the circuit breakers, but they're not part of the grid. They won't be connected to the cable. Okay, those batteries, could they be dangerous? The image of the polka dot wounds covering the passenger's body kept surfacing. Well, sure. This was apparently a naive question. He added, but the terminals are covered with insulated caps. Sachs turned and walked back to the substation. I'm going inside, Rhyme. She approached, noting that for some reason, the powerful lights made the interior even more ominous than when it was dark. The door to hell, she was thinking. I'm getting seasick, Sax. What are you doing? What she was doing, she realized, was hesitating, looking around, focusing on the gaping doorway. She realized that, though Rhyme couldn't see it, she was also rubbing her finger compulsively against the quick of her thumb. Sometimes she broke the skin doing this and surprised herself by finding dots or streaks of blood. That was bad enough, but she sure didn't want to break through the latex glove now and contaminate the scene with her own trace. She straightened her fingers and said, Just checking it out. But they'd known each other too long for any bullshit. He asked, What's wrong? Sachs took a deep breath. Finally, she answered, Little spooked, got to say, that arc thing, the way the Vic died, it was pretty bad. You want to wait? Call in some experts from Algonquin. They can walk you through it. She could tell from his voice, a tone, a pacing of his words, that he didn't want her to. It was one of the things she loved about him, the respect he showed by not coddling her. At home, at dinner, in bed, they were one thing. Here, they were criminalist and crime scene cop. She thought of her personal mantra, inherited from her father. When you move, they can't get you. So move. No, I'm fine. Amelia Sachs stepped into hell. Can you see okay? Yes, Rhyme responded. Sachs had clicked on the halogen lamp affixed to her headband. Small but powerful, it shined a fierce beam throughout the dim space. Even with the halogens, there were many shadowy crevices. The substation was cavernous inside, though from the sidewalk it had seemed smaller, narrow and dwarfed by the buildings on either side. Her eyes burned and nose stung from the smoke residue. Rhyme insisted that anyone searching scenes smell the air. Sense could tell you a great deal about the perp and the nature of the crime. Here, though, the only odor was a sour perfume a burned rubber metallic oily odor reminding her of car engines. She flashed on memories of herself and her father spending Sunday afternoons, backs aching, hunched over the open hood of a Chevy or Dodge muscle car, coaxing the mechanical nervous and vascular systems back to life. More recent memories, too. Sax and Pammy, the teenager who'd become a surrogate niece, together tuning the Torino Cobra as Pammy's small dog Jackson sat patiently on the tool bench and watched the surgeons at work. Swinging her head to train her miner's light around the hazy area, she noticed large banks of equipment, 
some beige or gray and relatively new-looking, some dating back to the last century, dark green and labeled with metal plaques offering the manufacturer and city of origin. Some, she noted, had addresses with no zip codes, revealing the distant era of their birth. The main floor of the station was circular, overlooking the open basement twenty feet below, visible over a pipe railing. Up here, the floor was concrete, but some of the platforms and the stairs were steel. Metal. One thing she knew about electricity was that metal was a good conductor. She located the unsub's cable running from the window about ten feet to a piece of equipment that the worker had described. She could see where the suspected had to stand to string the wire. She began walking the grid at that spot. Rime asked, What's that on the floor? Shiny. Looks like grease or oil, she said, her voice falling. Some of the equipment ruptured in the fire, or maybe there was a second arc here. She noted burned circles, a dozen of them, which seemed to be where sparks had slammed into the walls and surrounding equipment. Good. What? His footprints will come through nice and clear. This was true, but as she looked down at the greasy residue on the floor, she was thinking, was oil like metal and water a good conductor too? And where are the fucking batteries? She did indeed find some good footprints near the window in which the perp had knocked a hole to feed the deadly wire outside and near where he'd bolted it to the Algonquin line. Could have been left by the workers, she said of the prints, when they came in after the spark. We'll just have to find out, won't we? She or Ron Pulaski would take prints of the workers' footgear to compare with these, to eliminate them as suspects. Even if Justice Four was ultimately responsible, there was no reason why they couldn't recruit an insider for their terrorist plans. Though as she laid down numbers and photographed the soul marks, she said, I think there are unsubs, Rhyme. They're all the same, and the toes similar to what was on the ledge. Excellent, Rhyme breathed. Sachs then took electrostatic impressions of them and put the sheets near the door. She looked over the cable itself, which was thinner than she expected, only about a half inch in diameter. It was covered with black insulation of some kind and was made of silver-colored strands woven together. It wasn't, she was surprised to see, copper, about fifteen feet long in total. It was joined to the Algonquin main line by two wide brass or copper bolts with three-quarter-inch holes in them. So that's our weapon? Rhyme asked. This is it. Heavy? She hefted it, gripping the rubbery insulation. No, it's aluminum. It was troubling to her that, like a bomb, something so small and light could cause such mayhem. Sachs looked over the hardware and judged what she'd need from her toolkit to dismantle it. She stepped outside to retrieve the bag from her car's trunk. Her own tools, which she used on her car and for home repair, were more familiar to her than the ones in the crime scene unit RRV. They were like old friends. How's it going? Pulaski asked. It's going, she muttered. You find how he got in? I checked the roof. No access. Whatever the Algonquin people said, I'm thinking it has to be underground. I'm going to check out nearby manholes and basements. There's no obvious routes, but that's the good news, I guess. He might have been feeling pretty cocky. If we're lucky, we might find something good. 
Rhyme constantly urged officers under him to remember that one crime always had multiple scenes associated with it. There was, yes, perhaps just one location where the actual offense had occurred, but there's always entrance and exit routes to consider. And those might be two different paths, or more if multiple perps were involved. There could be staging areas, there could be rendezvous locations, and there could be the motel where they got together to gloat and share the loot afterward. And nine times out of ten, it's those scenes, the secondary or tertiary, where the perps forgot to wear gloves and clean up trace. Sometimes they even left their names and addresses lying around. Through Sax's microphone, Rhyme had heard the comment and said, Good call, rookie. Only lose the luck. Yes, sir. And lose the smug grin, too. I saw that. Pulaski's face went still. He'd forgotten Rhyme was using Amelia Sachs for his eyes as well as ears and legs. He turned and walked off to continue his search for the perp's access to the substation. Returning inside with her tools, Sachs wiped them down with adhesive pads to remove any contaminating trace. She walked up to the circuit breaker, the spot where the attacker's cable was mounted with the bolts. She started to reach for the metal portion of the wire. Involuntarily, her gloved hand stopped before she touched it. She stared at the raw metal gleaming under the beam of her helmet light. Sax? Rhyme's voice startled her. She didn't answer. Saw in her mind the hole in the pole, the deadly bits of molten steel, the holes in the young victim. The lines are dead. But what if she got her hand on the metal and somebody two or three miles away in a comfy little control room decided to make it undead? Hit a switch, not knowing about the search. And where the fuck are those damn batteries? We need the evidence back here, Rhyme said. Right. She slipped a nylon cover over the end of her wrench so that any distinctive marks on her tools wouldn't transfer to the nuts or bolts and be confused with marks left by the perps. She leaned forward and with only a moment of hesitation fitted the wrench onto the first bolt. With some effort, she loosened it, working as quickly as she could, expecting to feel a searing burn at any moment, though she supposed with that much voltage she wouldn't feel anything at all as she was electrocuted. The second fixture was undone a moment later, and she pulled the cable free. Coiling it, she wrapped the wire in plastic sheeting. The bolts and nuts went into an evidence bag. She set these outside the substation door for Pulaski or the technicians to collect and returned to continue her search. Looking at the floor, she saw more footsteps that seemed to match what she thought were the unsubs. Cocking her head, You're making me dizzy, Sax. She asked herself, as much as rhyme, What was that? You hear something? Yes, can't you? If I could hear it, I wouldn't be asking. It seemed to be a tapping of some sort. She walked to the center of the substation and looked over the railing into darkness below. Her imagination? No, the sound was unmistakable. I do hear it, Rhyme said. It's coming from downstairs, the basement. A regular beat, not like a human sound. A timed detonator, she wondered, and thought again about a booby trap. The perp was smart. He'd know that a crime scene team would spare no effort to search the substation. He'd want to stop them. She shared these thoughts with Rhyme. He replied, but if he'd put together a trap, why hadn't he done it near the wire? 
They came to the same conclusion simultaneously, but he voiced the thought. Because there's some greater threat to him in the basement. Rhyme then pointed out, If the power's off, what's making the noise? It doesn't sound like one-second intervals rhyme. It might not be a timer. She was gazing over the railing, careful not to touch the metal. He said, It's dark. I can't see much. I'm going to find out. And then she started down the spiral staircase. The metal staircase. Ten feet, fifteen, twenty. Random shafts of light from the halogens hit portions of the walls down here, but only the upper portions. Below that, everything was murky, the smoke residue thick. Her breaths were shallow, and she struggled not to choke. As she approached the bottom two full stories below the main floor, it was hard to see anything. The miner's light reflected back into her eyes. Still, it was the only illumination she had. She swung her head with the light from side to side, taking in the myriad boxes and machinery and wires and panels covering the walls. She hesitated, tapped her weapon, and stepped off the bottom of the stairs, and gasped as a jolt pierced her body. Sex, what? Sex had missed the fact that the floor was covered in two feet of freezing brackish water. She couldn't see it with the smoke. Water, Rhyme, I wasn't expecting it. And look. She focused ten feet or so over her head at a pipe that was leaking. That was the sound. Not a click, but dripping water. The idea of water in an electrical substation was so incongruous and so dangerous that it hadn't occurred to her that this could be the source of the noise. Because of the blast? No. He drilled a hole, Rhyme. I can see it. Two holes. Water's also flowing down the wall. That's what's filling up the room. Wasn't water as good an electrical conductor as metal, Sax wondered? And she was standing in a pool of it, right next to an array of wires and switches and connections above a sign. Danger, 138,000 volts. Rhyme's voice startled her. He's flooding the basement to destroy evidence. Right. Sax, what's that? I can't see it clearly. That box. The big one. Uh, look to the right. Yes, there. What is it? Oh, finally. It's the battery rhyme, the backup battery. Is it charged? They said it was, but I don't... She waded closer and looked down. A gauge on the battery showed that it was indeed charged. In fact, to Sachs, it looked like it was overcharged. The needle was past 100%. Then she remembered something else the Algonquin workers had said. Not to worry, because it was sealed with insulated caps. Except that it wasn't. She knew what battery caps looked like, and this unit had none. Two metal terminals connected to thick cables were exposed. The water's rising. It'll hit the terminals in a few minutes. Is there enough current to make one of those arc flashes? I don't know, Rhyme. There has to be, he whispered. He's using an arc to destroy something that'll lead us to him, something he couldn't take with him or destroy when he was there. Can you shut the water off? She looked quickly. No faucets that I can see. Uh, hold on a minute. Sachs continued to study the basement. I don't see what he wants to destroy, though. But then she spotted it. Right behind the battery, about four feet off the ground, was an access door. It wasn't large, about 18 inches square. 
That's it, Rhyme. That's how we got in. Must be a sewer or utility tunnel on the other side. But leave it. Pulaski can trace it from the street. Just get out. No, Rhyme, look at it. It's really tight. He'd have to squeeze through. It's got some good trace on it. Has to. Fibers, hair, maybe DNA. Why else would he want to destroy it? Rhyme was hesitating. He knew she was right about preserving the evidence, but didn't want her caught in another arc flash explosion. She waited closer to the access door, but as she approached, a tiny wake rose from the disturbance of her legs and the waves nearly crested the battery. She froze. Sax! Shh! She had to concentrate. By moving a few inches at a time, she was able to keep the waves below the top of the power source, but she could see she had no more than one or two minutes until the water hit the leads. With a straight-bladed screwdriver, she began to remove the frame holding the access door. The water was now nearly to the top of the battery. Every time she leaned forward to get leverage to unscrew the paint-stuck hardware, another small tide rose and the murky water sloshed up onto the top of the battery before receding. The battery's voltage was certainly smaller than the 100,000-volt line that had produced the arc flash outside, but the unsub probably didn't need to cause that much damage. His point was to create a big enough explosion to destroy the access door and whatever evidence it contained. She wanted the damn door. Sax, Rhyme whispered. Ignoring him and ignoring the image of the cauterized holes in the smooth flesh of the victim, the molten teardrops. Finally, the last screw came out. Old paint held the doorframe in place. She jammed the tip of the screwdriver into the edge and slammed her hand onto the butt of the tool. With a crack, the metal came away in her hands. The door and frame were heavier than she'd thought, and she nearly dropped it, but then she steadied herself, without sending a tsunami over the battery. In the opening, she saw the narrow utility tunnel that the suspect would have used to sneak into the substation. Rhyme whispered urgently, Into the tunnel. It'll protect you. Hurry. I'm trying. Except the access door wouldn't fit through the opening, even diagonally, because the frame was attached. Can't do it, she said, explaining the problem. I'll go back up the stairs. No, Sax, just leave the door. Get out through the tunnel. It's too good a piece of evidence. Clutching the access door, she began her escape, wading toward the stairs, glancing back from time to time to keep an eye on the battery. She moved agonizingly, slowly. Even so, every step sent another wave cresting to the edge of the battery terminals. What's going on, Sax? I'm nearly there, she whispered, as if too loud a voice would create more turbulence in the water. She was halfway to the steps when the water rose in tiny eddies and swirled around first one terminal, then the next. No arc flash. Nothing. Her shoulders sagged, heart thumping. It's a dud, Rhyme. We didn't have to work. A burst of white light filled her vision, accompanied by a huge cracking roar, and Amelia Sachs was flung backward under the surface of the grim ocean. Tom! The aide hurried into the room, looking Rhyme over carefully. What's wrong? How are you feeling? It's not me, his boss snapped, eyes wide, nodding his head at the blank screen. Amelia, she was at a scene. A battery, another arc flash. The audio and video are out. Call Pulaski. Call somebody. 
Tom Reston's eyes narrowed with concern, but he had practiced the art of caregiving for a long time. No matter what the crisis, he would coolly go about his necessary tasks. He calmly picked up a landline phone, regarded the number pad nearby, and hit a speed dial button. Panic isn't centered in the gut, and it doesn't trickle down the spine like, well, electricity in an energized wire. Panic rattles the body and soul everywhere, even if you're numb otherwise. Rhyme was furious with himself. He should have ordered Sachs out the instant they saw the battery, the rising tide. He always did this, got so focused on the case, the goal, finding the tiny fiber, the fragment of friction ridge print, anything that moved him closer to the perp, that he forgot the implications. He was playing with human lives. Why, look at his own injury. He'd been a captain in the NYPD, the head of investigation resources, and was searching a crime scene himself, crouching to pick up a fiber from a body when the beam tumbled from above and changed his life forever. And now that same attitude, which he'd instilled in Amelia Sachs, might have done even worse. She could now be dead. Tom had gotten through on the line. Who? Rhyme demanded, glaring at the aide. Who are you talking to? Is she all right? Tom held up a hand. What does that mean? What could that possibly mean? Rhyme felt a trickle of sweat down his forehead. He was aware his breath was coming faster. His heart was pounding, though he sensed this in his jaw and neck, not his chest, of course. Tom said, It's Ron. He's at the substation. I know where the fuck he is. What's going on? There's been an incident. That's what they're saying. Incident. Where's Amelia? They're checking. There's some people inside. They heard an explosion. I know there was an explosion. I fucking saw it. The aide's eyes swiveled toward Rhyme. Are you... How are you feeling? Quit asking that. What's going on at the scene? Tom continued to scan Rhyme's face. You're flushed. I'm fine, the criminalist said calmly to get the young man to focus on his phone call. Really? Then the aide's head tilted sideways, and to Rhyme's horror he stiffened. His shoulders rose slightly. No. Okay, Tom said into the phone. Okay what? the criminalist snapped. Tom ignored his boss. Give me the information. And cradling the phone between neck and shoulder, he began to type on the keyboard of the lab's main computer. The screen popped to life. Rhyme had lost the pretense of calm and was about to lose his temper when, on the screen, up came the image of an apparently uninjured, though very wet, Amelia Sachs. Strands of her red hair were plastered around her face like seaweed on a surfacing scuba diver. Sorry, Rhyme. Lost the main camera when I went under. She coughed hard and wiped at her forehead, examined her fingers with a look of distaste. The motion was jerky. Relief immediately replaced panic, though the anger at himself remained. Sachs was staring back somewhat eerily, her eyes focused only in his general direction. I'm on one of the Algonquin workers' laptops. It's got a camera set up on it. Can you see me okay? Yes, yes, but you're all right? Just took in some pretty disgusting water through my nose, but I'm okay. Rhyme was asking, what happened? The arc flash. It wasn't an arc. The battery wasn't rigged for that. The Algonquin guy told me there wasn't enough voltage. What the unsub did was make a bomb. Apparently you can do that with batteries. You seal the vents and overcharge it. That produces hydrogen gas. 
When water hits the terminals, it short circuits and the spark ignites the hydrogen. That's what happened. And have the medics looked you over? No, no need. The bang was loud, but it wasn't that big. I got hit by some bits of plastic from the housing. Didn't even bruise me. The impact knocked me down, but I kept the access door above the water. I don't think it's contaminated too bad. Good. I mean... His voice break to a halt. For some reason, years ago, they'd settled on an unspoken superstition. They never used their first names. He was troubled that he nearly had. Good. So that's how he got in. Had to be. It was then that he was aware of Tom walking toward the wall. The aide grabbed the blood pressure monitor and wrapped it around Rhyme's arm. Don't do that. Quiet, Tom barked, silencing Rhyme. You're flushed and you're sweating. Because we just had a fucking incident at a crime scene, Tom. You have a headache? He did. He said, no. Don't lie. A little one, it's nothing. Tom slapped the stethoscope against his arm. Sorry, Amelia, I need him quiet for 30 seconds. Sure. Rhyme started to protest again, but then he decided that the sooner his blood pressure was taken, the sooner he could get back to work. Without sensation, he watched the cuff inflate, and Tom listened as he let the air out of the sphygmomanometer. He ripped off the Velcro noisily. It's high. I want to make sure it doesn't get any higher. I'm going to take care of some things now. A polite euphemism for what Rhyme bluntly called the piss-and-shit detail. Sachs asked, What's going on there, Tom? Everything okay? Yes. Rhyme was struggling to keep his voice calm and to obscure the fact that he felt oddly vulnerable, though whether it was her near miss or his troubled condition, he couldn't say. He was embarrassed, too. Tom said, He's had a spike in blood pressure. I want him off the phone now. We'll bring back the evidence, Rhyme. Be there in a half hour. Tom was starting forward to disconnect the call when Rhyme felt a tap in his head. It was cognitive, not physical. He barked, Wait! meaning the command for both Tom and Sachs. Lincoln, his aide protested. Please, Tom, just two minutes. It's important. Though clearly suspicious of the polite appeal, Tom nodded reluctantly. Ron was searching for the place the perp got into the tunnel, right? Yes. Is he there? Her jerky, grain-filled image looked around. Yes. Get him on camera. He heard Sachs call the officer over. A moment later, he was seated, staring out of the monitor. Yes, sir. You find where he got into the tunnel behind the substation? Yep. Yep. You sound like a dog, rookie. Yep, yep. Sorry. Yes, I did. Where? There's a manhole in an alley up the street. Algonquin Power. It was for access to steam pipes. It didn't lead to the substation itself, but about 20 feet inside, maybe 30, I found a grating. Somebody had cut an opening into it, big enough to climb through. They'd stuck it back up, but I could see it had been cut. Recently? Right. Because there was no rust on the cut edges. Yeah, I mean, yes. It led to this tunnel. It was really old. Might have been for delivering coal or something a long time ago. That's what went to the access door that Amelia got. I was at the end of the tunnel, and I saw the light when she took the door off, and I heard the battery blow and her scream. I got to her right away through the tunnel. 
The gruffness fell away. Thanks, Pulaski. An awkward moment. Rhymes' compliments were so rare he'd found that people didn't quite know what to do with them. I was careful not to contaminate the scene too much, though. To save lives, contaminate to your heart's content. Remember that. Sure. The criminalist continued. You walked the grid at the manhole and where he cut through the grating? And the tunnel? Yes, sir. Anything jump out? Just footprints, but I've got trace. We'll see what it says. Tom whispered firmly. Lincoln? Just a minute more. Now, I need you to do something else, rookie. You see that restaurant or coffee shop across the street from the power station? The officer looked to his right. I've got it. Wait, how'd you know there was one there? Oh, from one of my neighborhood strolls, Rhyme said, chuckling. I... The young man was flustered. I know because there has to be one. Our unsub wanted to be able to see the substation for the attack. He couldn't watch from a hotel room because he'd have to register, or an office building because it would be too suspicious. He'd be someplace where he could sit at his leisure. Oh, I get it. You mean psychologically he gets off on watching the fireworks. The time for compliments was over. Jesus Christ, rookie, that's profiling. How do I feel about profiling? Um, you're not exactly a big fan, Lincoln? Rhyme caught Sachs in the background, smiling. He needed to see how the device was working. He'd created something unique. His arc flash gun isn't the sort of thing he could test fire at a rifle range. He had to make adjustments to the voltage and the circuit breakers as he went along. He had to make sure it discharged at the exact moment when the bus was there. He started manipulating the grid computer at 11.20, and in 10 minutes it was all over. Go talk to the manager at the restaurant. Coffee shop. Of the coffee shop and see if anybody was inside near a window for a while before the explosion. He would have left right after, before police and fire got there. Oh, and find out if they have broadband and who's the provider. Tom, now in rubber gloves, was gesturing impatiently. The piss and shit detail. Pulaski said, Sure, Lincoln. And then... The young officer interrupted. Seal off the restaurant and walk the grid where he was sitting. Exactly right, rookie. Then both of you get the hell back here ASAP. With a flick of one of his working fingers, Rhyme ended the call, beating Tom's own digit to the button by a millisecond. The cloud zone, Fred Delbray was thinking. Recalling when Assistant Special Agent in Charge Tucker McDaniel, newly on board in the FBI's New York office, had gathered the troops and given, in lecture form, a talk similar to what he'd just delivered at Rhymes a few hours earlier, about the new methods of communication the bad guys were using, about how the acceleration of technology was making it easier for them and harder for us. The Cloud Zone. Delray understood the concept, of course. You couldn't be in law enforcement now and not be aware of McDaniel's high-tech approach to finding and collaring perps. But that didn't mean he liked it. Not one bit. Largely because of what the phrase stood for. It was an emblem for fundamental, maybe cataclysmic changes in everyone's life. Changes in his life, too. Heading downtown on a subway on this clear afternoon, Delray was thinking about his father, a professor at Marymount Manhattan College, 
and a writer of several books about African-American philosophers and cultural critics. The man had eased into academia at the age of 30, and he'd never left. He died at the same desk he'd called home for decades, slumping forward on proofs of the journal he'd founded when Martin Luther King's assassination was still fresh in the world's mind. The politics had changed drastically during his father's lifetime. The death of communism, the wounding of racial segregation, the birth of non-state enemies. Computers replaced typewriters in the library. Cars had airbags. TV channels propagated from four, plus UHF, to hundreds. But very little about the man's lifestyle had altered in a core way. The elder Del Rey thrived in his enclosed world of academia, specifically philosophy, and oh, how he had wanted his son to settle there too, examining the nature of existence and the human condition. He tried to fill his son with a love of the same. To some extent, he was successful. Questioning, brilliant, discerning young Fred did indeed develop a fascination with humankind in all its incarnations, metaphysics, psychology, theology, epistemology, ethics, and politics. He loved it all. But it took only one month as a graduate assistant to realize he'd go mad if he didn't put his talents to practical use. And never one to pull back, he sought out the rawest and most intense practical application of philosophy he could think of. He joined the FBI. Change. His father reconciled himself to his son's apostasy, and they enjoyed coffee and long walks in Prospect Park, during which they came to understand that although their laboratories and techniques were different, their outlooks and insights were not. The human condition observed and written about by the father and experienced firsthand by the son. In the unlikely form of undercover work, Fred's intense curiosity about and insights into the nature of life made him a natural everyman. Unlike most undercover cops with their limited acting skills and repertoires, Del Rey could truly become the people he played. Once, when Del Rey was in disguise as a homeless man on the streets of New York, not far from the federal building, the then-assistant special agent in charge of the Manhattan office of the FBI, Del Rey's boss, in effect, walked right past and dropped a quarter into his cup, never recognizing him. One of the best compliments Del Rey ever received. A chameleon. One week, a scorched brain tweaker desperate for meth. The next, a South African envoy with nuclear secrets to sell. Then a Somalian imam's lieutenant lugging around a hatred of America and a hundred quotations from the Quran. He owned dozens of outfits, purchased or hacked together by himself, which now clogged the basement of the townhouse he and Serena had bought a few years ago in BK, Brooklyn. He'd advanced in his career, which was inevitable for someone with his drive, skill, and absolute lack of desire to stab fellow workers in the back. Now Delray primarily ran other undercover FBI agents and civilian confidential informants, a.k.a. snitches, though he still got into the field occasionally, and he loved it just as much as he ever had. But then came the change. Cloud Zone. Delray didn't deny that both the good guys and the bad guys were getting smarter and more tech-savvy. The shift was obvious. Humant the fruits of intelligence gathering from human-to-human -human contact, was giving way to SIGINT. But it was a field that Del Rey simply wasn't comfortable with. 
In her youth, Serena had tried to be a torch singer. She was a natural at all forms of dance, from ballet to jazz to modern. But she just didn't have the skill to sing. Delray was the same with the new law enforcement of data, numbers, technology. He kept running his snitches and he kept going undercover himself and getting results. But with McDaniel and his TNA team, oh, excuse me, Tucker, his tech and comm team, old school Delray was feeling, well, old. The ASAC was sharp, a hard worker, putting in 60-hour weeks and an infighter. He'd stand up for his agents against the president if he needed to. And his techniques had worked. Last month, McDaniel's people had picked up sufficient details from encrypted satellite phone calls to pinpoint a fundamentalist cell outside Milwaukee. The message to Delray and the older agents was clear. Your time's passing. He still stung from the dig, possibly inadvertent, delivered at the meeting in Rhymes' lab. Well, keep at it, Fred. You're doing a good job. Meaning, I didn't even expect you to come up with any leads to Justice For and Raman. Maybe McDaniel was right to criticize. After all, Delray had as good a network of CIs in place as you could hope for to track terrorist activities. He met with them regularly. He worked them all hard, doling out protection to the fearful, Kleenex to the wet-eyed guilty, cash to the ones who informed as a livelihood, and painful squeezes to the shoulders and psyches of those who'd gotten, as Delray's grandmother said, too big for their britches. But of all the information he'd gathered about terrorist plots, even embryonic ones, there'd been nothing about Raman's justice for or about a big fucking spark. And here McDaniel's people had made an ID and defined a real threat by sitting on their asses. Like the drones in the Middle East in Afghanistan? You know the pilots are next to a strip mall in Colorado Springs or Omaha? Delray had another concern, too. One had risen around the same time as youthful McDaniel appeared. Maybe he just wasn't as good as he used to be. Raman might have been right under his nose. Cell members in Justice 4 might have been studying electrical engineering in BK or New Jersey the same way the 9-11 hijackers had studied flying. Then something else. He had to admit he'd been distracted lately. Something from his other life, he called it, his life with Serena, which he kept as separate from the street as you'd keep flame from gasoline. And that something was pretty significant. Fred Del Rey was now a father. Serena had had a baby boy a year ago. They talked about it beforehand, and she'd insisted that even after their child was born, Del Rey wouldn't change his job one bit, even if it involved running dangerous undercover sets. She understood that his work defined him the way dancing defined her. It would be more dangerous to him, ultimately, to move behind a desk. But was being a father altering him as an agent? Delray looked forward to taking Preston to the park or a store with him, feeding the boy, reading to him. Serena had come by the nursery, laughed, and gently taken Kierkegaard's existentialist manifesto, Fear and Trembling, from Delray's lengthy hand, and replaced it with Good Night Moon. Delray hadn't realized that even at that young age, words count. The subway now stopped in the village, and passengers rustled aboard. Instinctively, the undercover operative within him immediately spotted four people of note. Two almost guaranteed to be pickpockets, 
one kid who was carrying a knife or box cutter, and a young, sweaty businessman pressing a protective hand against a pocket so hard that he'd split open the bag of coke if he wasn't careful. The street. How Fred Delray loved the street. But these four had nothing to do with his mission, and he let them fade from his consciousness, as he told himself, Okay, you fucked up, you missed ramen, and you missed Justice Four, but the casualties and damage were minimal. McDaniel was condescending, but hasn't made you a scapegoat. Not yet, which somebody else might have done in a heartbeat. Delray could still find a lead to their unsub and stop him before another of those terrible attacks happened. Delray could still redeem himself. At the next subway stop, he climbed out and began his trek east. Eventually, he came to bodegas and tenements and old dark social clubs, rancid-smelling diners, radio taxi operations whose signs were in Spanish or Arabic or Farsi. No fast-moving professionals like in the West Village. Here, people weren't moving around much at all, but merely sitting, men mostly, on rickety chairs or on doorsteps, the young ones slim, the old round. They all watched with cautious eyes. This was where the serious work of the street got done. This was Fred Del Rey's office. He strode up to a coffee shop window and looked inside, with some difficulty since the glass hadn't been cleaned for months. Ah, yeah, there. He spotted what would either be his salvation or his downfall. His last chance. Tapping one ankle against the other just to make sure the pistol strapped there hadn't shifted, he opened the door and stepped inside. How are you feeling? Sax asked, walking into the lab. Rhyme said stiffly, I'm fine. Where's the evidence? Sentences spoken without discernible punctuation. The Tex and Ron are bringing it? I took the Cobra by myself. Meaning, he supposed, she'd driven home like a crazy woman. And how are you? Tom asked. Wet. Which went without saying. Her hair was drying, but the clothes were still drenched. Her condition wasn't an issue. They knew she was fine. They'd established that earlier. Rhyme had been shaken at the time, but now she was all right, and he wanted to get on with the evidence. But isn't that just another way of saying there's a 45% chance that somebody else somewhere in New York City is going to get electrocuted? And it could be happening right now. Well, where are... What happened? She asked Tom, a glance toward Rhyme. I said I was fine. I'm asking him. Sack's own temper flared a bit. Blood pressure was high, spiking. And now it's not high, Tom, is it? Lincoln Rhyme said testily. It's nice and normal. That's sort of like saying the Russians sent missiles to Cuba. That was tense for a while, but since Miami isn't a radioactive crater, I guess that problem sorted itself out now, didn't it? It's in the past. Call Pulaski. Call the text from Queens. I want the evidence. His aide ignored him and said to Sachs, Didn't need medicine, but I'm keeping an eye on it. She gave Rhyme another visual examination. Then she said she was going upstairs to change. There a problem? asked Lon Salito, who'd arrived from downtown a few minutes before. Aren't you feeling good, Link? Oh, Jesus Christ, Rhyme spat out. Is everybody deaf? Is everybody ignoring me? 
Then he glanced into the doorway. Ah, oh, at last, another country heard from. God damn, Pulaski, at least you're being productive. What do we have? The young cop back in uniform was carting in milk crates that the crime scene officers usually used for transporting evidence bags. A moment later, two techs from the Queen's crime scene HQ brought in a bulky plastic-wrapped object. The wire. The strangest weapon Rhyme had ever seen in a case, and one of the deadliest. They also had the access door from the substation basement similarly wrapped in plastic. Pulaski? The coffee shop? You were right. I've got some things here, sir. A lifted eyebrow from the criminalist reminded the officer the appellation wasn't necessary. The criminalist was a retired captain of the NYPD. He didn't have any more right to a formal title or sir than anybody else on the street, and he'd been trying to break Pulaski of his wispy insecurities. They were due to youth, of course, but there was more to it. He'd sustained a serious head injury on the first case they'd worked together. It had nearly ended his career in law enforcement, but he'd stayed on the force despite the injury and the resulting bouts of confusion and disorientation that occasionally still plagued him. His determination to remain a cop had been inspired largely by Rhyme's decision to do the same. In furthering his cause to make Pulaski a top crime scene officer, one of the most important things Rhyme needed to instill was a bulletproof ego. You could have all the skills in the world, but they were useless if you didn't have the balls to back them up. Before he died, he wanted to see Pulaski move up high in the ranks of CS, crime scene, in New York City. He knew it could happen. He had a brief image of a hope of his, Pulaski and Sachs running the unit together, Rhyme's legacy. He thanked the CS technicians as they left with respectful nods and expressions that suggested they were memorizing what the lab looked like. Not many people made it over here from headquarters to see Rhyme in person. He occupied a special place in the hierarchy of the NYPD. There had been a recent turnover and the head of forensics had gone to Miami-Dade County. Several senior detectives were now running the operation until a permanent head could be appointed. There was even some talk of hiring Rhyme back to run crime scene once more. When the deputy commissioner had called about this, Rhyme had pointed out that he might have a few problems with the JST, the NYPD job standard test portion of the requirements. The physical fitness exam required candidates to complete a timed obstacle course, sprint to a six-foot-high barrier and jump over it, restrain a fake bad guy, race upstairs, drag a 176-pound mannequin to safety, and pull the trigger of a weapon 16 times with one's dominant hand, 15 with the other. Rhyme demurred, explaining to the NYPD official who came to see him that he could never pass the test. He could probably clear only a five-foot barrier, but he was flattered by the interest. Sachs returned downstairs wearing jeans and a light blue sweater, tucked in, her hair washed and lightly damp, pulled back into a ponytail once more bound with a black rubber band. At that moment, Tom went to answer the doorbell, and another figure stepped into the doorway. The slim man, whose retiring demeanor suggested he was a middle-aged accountant or shoe salesman, was Mel Cooper, in Rhyme's opinion, one of the best forensic lab people in the country. With degrees in math, physics, and organic chemistry, and a senior official in both the International Association for Identification and International Association of Blood Pattern Analysis, he was constantly in demand at crime scene headquarters. 
But since Rhyme was responsible for kidnapping the tech from a job in upstate New York years ago and getting him to the NYPD, it was understood that Cooper would drop what he was doing and head to Manhattan if Rhyme and Salido were running a case and they wanted him. Mel, glad you were available. Hmm, available. Didn't you call my lieutenant and threaten him with all sorts of terrible things if he didn't release me from the Hanover Stearns case? I did it for you, Mel. You were being wasted on insider trading. And I thank you for the reprieve. Cooper nodded a greeting to those in the room, knuckled his Harry Potter glasses up on his nose, and walked across the lab to the examination table on silent brown hush puppy shoes. Though by appearances the least athletic man Rhyme had ever seen, apart from himself, of course, Mel Cooper nonetheless moved with the grace of a soccer player, and Rhyme was reminded that he was a champion ballroom dancer. Let's hear the details, Rhyme said, turning to Sachs. She flipped through her notes and explained what the power company field executive had told her. Algonquin Consolidated Power provides electricity, they call it juice, for most of the area. Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. That's the smokestacks on the East River? That's right, she said to Cooper. Their headquarters is there, and they have a steam and electricity generation plant. Now, what the Algonquin supervisor said was that the unsub could have broken into the substation at any time in the last 36 hours to rig the wire. The substations are generally unmanned. A little after 11 this morning, he, or they, got into the Algonquin computers, kept shutting down substations around the area, and rerouted all that electricity through the substation on 57. When voltage builds up to a certain point, it has to complete a circuit. You can't stop it. It either jumps to another wire or to something that's grounded. Normally, the circuit breakers in the substation would pop, but the perp had reset them to take ten times the load, so it was sitting in that, she pointed to the cable, waiting to burst like a dam. The pressure built up and the juice had to go someplace. Here's how the grid works in New York. One of the workers drew this for me, and it was helpful. Sex pulled out a piece of paper on which was a diagram. She stepped to a whiteboard and, with a dark blue marker, transferred the writing. Power generation plant or incoming supply, 345,000 volts, through high-tension cables. Transmission substation steps 345,000 volts down to 138,000 volts through area transmission lines. Area substation steps 138,000 volts down to 13,800 volts through distribution feeder lines. 1. Spot networks in major commercial buildings steps 13,800 volts down to 120 over 208 volts. Or 2. Street-level transformers, steps 13,800 volts down to 120 over 208 volts, through incoming service lines, household and offices, 120 over 208 volts. Sachs continued. Now, MH10, the substation on 57, is an area substation. The line coming in was high voltage. He could have rigged the cable anywhere on an area transmission line, but that's real tricky, I guess, because the voltage is so high. So he was working on the output side of the area substation, where the voltage is only 13,800. Phew, Salido muttered. Only. 
Then, when it was rigged, he set the circuit breakers higher and flooded the station with incoming juice. And it blew, Rhyme said. She picked up an evidence bag containing teardrop-shaped bits of metal. And then it blew, she repeated. These were all over the place, like shrapnel. What are they? Salito asked. Molten droplets from the bus sign pole blew them everywhere, nicked the concrete and went right through the sides of some cars. The Vic was burned, but that's not what killed him. Her voice grew soft, Rhyme noticed. It was like a big shotgun blast. Quarterized the wounds. She grimaced. That kept him conscious for a while. Take a look. A nod at Pulaski. The officer plugged the flashcards into a nearby computer and created files for the case. A moment later, photos popped up on the high-def monitors nearby. After years and years in the crime scene business, Rhyme was largely inured to even the most horrific images. These, though, troubled him. The young victim's body had been riddled by the dots of metal. There was little blood thanks to the searing heat of the projectiles. Had the perp known that's what his weapon would do, sealing the punctures, keeping his victims conscious to feel the pain? Was this part of his M.O.? Rhyme could understand now why Sachs was so troubled. Christ, the big detective muttered. Rhyme shook aside the image and asked, Who was he? Name was Lewis Martin, assistant manager in a music store. Twenty-eight, no record. No connection to Algonquin, MTA. Any reason anybody'd want him dead? None, Sachs said. Wrong time, wrong place, Salito summarized. Rhyme said, Ron, the coffee shop, what did you find? A man in dark blue overalls came into the place about 10.45. He had a laptop with him. He went online. Blue overalls, Salito asked. Any logo? ID? Nobody saw, but the Algonquin workers there, their uniforms were the same dark blue. Get a description, the rumpled cop persisted. Probably white, probably 40s, glasses, dark cap. A couple people said no glasses and no cap. Blonde hair, red hair, dark hair. Witnesses, Rhyme muttered disparagingly. You could have a shooter naked to the waist kill somebody in front of ten witnesses, and each one would describe him as wearing ten different colored T-shirts. In the past few years, his doubt about the value of eyewitnesses had tempered somewhat, because of Sachs's skill in interviewing, and because of Catherine Dance, who proved that analyzing body language was scientific enough in most cases to produce repeatable results. Still, he could never completely shake his skepticism. And what happened to this guy in the overalls? Rhyme asked. Nobody's really sure. It was pretty chaotic. All they knew was that they heard this huge bang. The whole street went white with the flash, and then everybody ran outside. Nobody could remember seeing him after that. He took his coffee with him? Rhyme asked. He loved beverage containers. They were like ID cards with the DNA and fingerprint information they contained, along with trace that adhered because of the sticky nature of milk, sugar, and other additives. Afraid he did, Pulaski confirmed. Shit. What did you find at the table? This. Pulaski pulled a plastic envelope out of a milk crate. It's empty. Salito squinted and teased his imposing belly maybe scratching an itch, maybe absently dismayed that his latest fad diet wasn't working. But Rhyme looked at the plastic bag and smiled. 
Good job, rookie. Good job, the lieutenant muttered. There's nothing there. My favorite sort of evidence, Lon. The bits that are invisible. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm wondering about hackers, Rhyme mused. Pulaski, what about wireless at the coffee shop? I was thinking about it, and I'm betting they didn't have it. You're right. How'd you know? He couldn't take the chance that it'd be down. He's probably logging in through some cell phone connection. But we need to find out how he got into the Algonquin system. Lon, get computer crimes on board. They need to contact somebody in Internet Security at Algonquin. See if Rodney's available. The NYPD Computer Crimes Unit was an elite group of about 30 detectives and support staff. Rhyme worked with one of them occasionally, Detective Rodney Tsarnak. Rhyme thought of him as a young man, but in fact he had no idea of his age since he had the boyish attitude, sloppy dress, and tousled hair of a hacker, an image and avocation that tend to take years off people. Salido placed the call and, after a brief conversation, hung up, reporting that Sarnak would call Algonquin's information technology team immediately to see about hacking into the grid servers. Cooper was looking reverently at the wire. So that's it. Then, lifting another of the bags that contained misshapen metal discs, the shrapnel, he added, Lucky nobody was walking by. If this had happened on Fifth Avenue, there could be two dozen people dead. Ignoring the tech's unnecessary observation, Rhyme focused on Sachs. He saw that her eyes had gone still as she looked at the tiny disks. In a voice perhaps harsher than necessary to shake her attention away from the shrapnel, he called, Come on, people. Let's get to work. Easing into the booth, Fred Delray found himself looking at a pale, skinny man who could have been a wasted thirty or a preserved fifty. The guy was wearing a sports jacket that was too big. It sourced either a very low-end thrift shop or a coat rack when nobody was looking. Jeep. Mm, that's not my name anymore. Not your name, like nacho cheese. Then whose cheese is it? I don't get... What's your name now? Delray asked, frowning deeply, playing a particular role, one he generally slipped into with people like this. Jeep, or not Jeep had been a sadistic junkie the FBI agent had collared in an undercover set that required Delray to laugh his way through the man's graphic depiction of torturing a college kid who'd reneged on a drug payment. Then came the bust, and after some negotiation and time served, the man became one of Delray's pets, which meant a tight leash that had to be jerked occasionally. It was Jeep, but I decided to change it. I'm Jim now, Fred. Changes. The magic word of the day. Oh, oh, speaking of names, Fred, Fred? I'm your buddy. I'm your best friend. I didn't remember those introductions, signing your dance card, meeting the parents. Sorry, sir. Tell you what, stick with Fred. Don't believe you when you say sir. The man was a disgusting morsel of humanity, but Delray had learned you had to walk a fine line. Never contempt, yet never hesitate to dig in a knuckle or two, the pressure of fear. Fear breeds respect, just the way of the world. Now, here's what we're doing. This is important. You got a date coming up, I'm recalling, a hearing about leaving the jurisdiction. Delray didn't care about losing him. Jeep's usefulness was pretty much gone. That was the nature of CIs. They have a shelf life of fresh yogurt. 
Jeep, Jim, was going to appeal to the New York State Parole Board about permission to move to Georgia, of all places. If you'd put in a word, Fred, sir, that'd be great. And he turned big, soupy eyes the agent's way. Wall Street should take a lesson from the confidential informant world. No derivatives, no default swaps, no insurance, no cooking the books. It was simple. You gave your snitch something of X value, and he gave you something equally important. If he didn't produce, he was out. If you didn't pay, you got shit. And all so very transparent. Okay, Del Rey said. What you want's on the table. Now about what I want. And what I have to say up front is it's time-sensitive. You know what that means, Jim? Somebody's going to get fucked in pretty soon? Right deal. Now listen close. I need to find Brent. A pause. William Brent? Why would I know where to find him? Jeep Jim, Slim Jim, asked this with too much rise in his voice, telling Del Rey that the snitch had at least some idea where to find the man. Del Rey sang, Georgia's on my mind. A full sixty seconds passed while Jeep did some negotiating with himself. I mean, maybe I could. The thing is, there's a possibility. You gonna finish those sentences, or can I eat them? Let me check something. Jeep, James, Jim, rose and walked into the corner of the place and began texting, leaving Del Rey amused at the paranoia about overhearing a text message. Jeepy boy would probably do well in Georgia. Delray sipped water the waiter had brought. He hoped the skinny guy's mission would be successful. One of the agent's biggest successes was running William Brent, a middle-aged white guy, unathletic and looking like a Walmart checker. He'd been key in bringing down a very nasty conspiracy. A domestic terrorist group, racists and separatists, had a plan to blow up a number of synagogues on a Friday evening and blame Islamic fundamentalists for it. They had money, but not the means, so they turned to a local organized crime family, who also had no love of either Jews or Muslims. Brent had been hired by the family to help, and he'd fallen for Delray's twitchy character, an arms dealer from Haiti selling rocket-propelled grenades. Brent got collared, and Delray turned him. Surprising everyone, he took to confidential informing, as if he'd studied all his life for the job. Brent infiltrated high up in both the racist group and the family and brought down the conspiracy. His debt to society paid, Brent nonetheless went on to work with Delray in various personas. A mean-ass hired killer, a jewelry and bank heist mastermind, a radical anti-abortion activist. He proved to be one of the sharpest CIs the agent had ever run. And a chameleon in his own right, he was the flip side of Fred Del Rey. Some years ago, it was even suspected, but never proven, that Brent had run a network of his own snitches inside the NYPD itself. Del Rey ran him for a year until he got overexposed and Brent retired into the comfy quilt of witness protection. But word was that in one of his new personas, he remained well-connected, a player on the street. Since none of Delray's usual sources had come up with anything about Justice Four or Raman or the grid attack, the agent thought of William Brent. Jimmy Jeep returned and sat down on the squeaking bench. I think I can make it happen. But what's this about, man? I mean, I don't want him to clip me. Which was, 
Delray reflected. One fairly significant difference between Wall Street and the CI business. He said, no, no, Jimmy boy, you're not hearing me. I'm not asking you to turn into a little fly on the wall. I'm asking you to play matchmaker is all. You get me a sit down and you'll be eating peaches down in Georgia in no time. Delray slid forward a card that contained only a phone number. This is what he should call. Go make it happen. Now? Now. Jeep nodded toward the kitchen. But my lunch I didn't eat yet. What kind of place is this? Delray barked suddenly, looking around horrified. What do you mean, Fred? You can't get food to go? Five hours had passed since the attack, and the tension was climbing in Rhyme's townhouse. None of the leads was panning out. The wire, he snapped urgently. Where did it come from? Cooper shoved his thick glasses up on his nose again. He pulled on latex examining gloves, but before touching the evidence, he cleaned his hands with a pet hair roller and discarded the tape. Rhyme had been instructing his team to do this ever since he'd analyzed a case for the New Jersey State Police and found that some fiber evidence had come not from the suspect in custody, but from the inside pocket of a detective's jacket. The investigator had stuffed a wad of loose rubber gloves there, after seeing some cop on a popular crime scene TV show do the same. The odds of contamination were slim, but a forensic detective's job was only partly to find and analyze the evidence. They had to make sure it remained pristine enough to convict the bad guys in a courtroom filled with sharp defense lawyers. After the infamous New Jersey fiber case, he insisted his people roll gloves after donning them if they hadn't been in contamination-free bags or boxes. Using surgical scissors, Cooper cut the plastic wrapper off and exposed the wire. It was about 15 feet long, and most of it was covered with black insulation. The wire itself wasn't solid, but comprised many silver-colored strands. At one end was bolted the thick, scorched brass plate. Attached to the bare other end were two large copper bolts with holes in the middle. They're called split bolts, the Algonquin guy told me, Sachs said. Used for splicing wires. That's what he used to hook the cable to the main line. She then explained how he'd hung the plate. It was called a bus bar, the worker had also explained, out the window. It was attached to the cable with two quarter-inch bolts. The arc had flashed from the plate into the nearest ground source, the pole. Rhyme glanced at Sax's thumb, ragged and dark with a bit of dried blood. She tended to chew her nails and worry digits in her scalp. Tension built up in her like the voltage in the Algonquin substation. She dug into her thumb again, and then, as if forcing herself to stop, pulled on latex gloves of her own. Lon Salito was on the phone with the officers canvassing for witnesses up and down 57th Street. Rhyme gave him a fast, questioning glance, but the detective's grimace, deeper than the one that usually graced his features, explained that the efforts so far were unfruitful. Rhyme turned his attention back to the wire. Move the camera over it, Mel, Rhyme said. Slowly. Using a handheld video unit, the tech scanned the wire from top to bottom, turned it over, and went back the other way. What the camera saw was broadcast in high definition on the large screen in front of Rhyme. He stared intently. He muttered, Bennington Electrical Manufacturing, South Chicago, Illinois, model AMMV60, zero gauge, rated up to 60,000 volts. 
Pulaski gave a laugh. You know that, Lincoln? Where'd you learn about wires? It's printed on the side, rookie. Oh, I didn't notice. Obviously. And our perp cut it to this length, Mal. What do you think? Not machine cut. I'd agree. Using a magnifying glass, Cooper was examining the end of the metal cable that had been bolted to the substation wire. He then focused the video on the cut ends. Amelia? The resident mechanic looked it over. Hand hacksaw, she offered. The split bolts were unique to the power industry, it turned out, but they could have come from dozens of sources. The bolts affixing the wire to the bus bar were similarly generic. Let's get our charts going, Rhyme then said. Pulaski wheeled several whiteboards forward from the corner of the lab. On the top of one, Sachs wrote, Crime Scene, Algonquin Substation, Manhattan 10, West 57th Street. On the other was Unsub Profile. She filled in what they'd discovered so far. Did he get the wire at the substation? Rhyme asked. No, there wasn't any stored there, the young man said. Then find out where he did get it. Call Bennington. Right. Okay, Rhyme continued. We've got metalwork and hardware. That means tool marks. The hacksaw. Let's look at the wire closely. Cooper switched to a large object microscope, also plugged into the computer, and examined where the wire had been cut. He used low magnification. It's a new saw blade. Sharp. Rhyme gave an envious glance toward the tech's deft hands, moving the focus in the geared stage of the scope. Then he returned to the screen. New, yes, but there's a broken tooth. Near the handle. Right. Before people began to saw, they generally rested the blade on what they were about to cut three or four times. Doing this, especially in soft aluminum like the wire, could reveal broken or bent saw teeth or other unique patterns that could link tools found in the perp's possession to the one used in a crime. Now the split bolts? Cooper found distinctive scratch marks on all the bolts, suggesting that the perp's wrench had probably left them. Love soft brass. Rhyme muttered, just love it. So, he's got well-used tools, more and more looking like he's an insider. Salido disconnected his call. Nothing. Maybe somebody saw somebody in a blue jumpsuit, but it might have been an hour after it happened, when the whole friggin' block was crawling with Algonquin repair crews wearing friggin' blue jumpsuits. What have you found out, rookie? Rhyme barked. I want sources for the wire. I'm on hold. Tell him you're a cop. I did. Tell him you're the chief cop, the big cheese. I... But Rhyme's attention was clearly on something else. The iron bars forming the grate that barred entrance to the access tunnel. How'd he cut through them, Mel? A careful look revealed he hadn't used a hacksaw, but a bolt cutter. Cooper examined the ends of the bars through a microscope fitted with a digital camera and took pictures. He then transferred the shots to the central computer and assembled them onto one screen. Any distinctive marks? Rhyme asked. As with the broken hacksaw tooth and scratches on the bolts and nuts, any unusual marking on the cutter would link its owner to the crime scene. How's that one? Cooper asked, pointing at the screen. There was a tiny crescent of a scratch in roughly the same position on the cut surfaces of several of the bars. That'll do. Good. 
Then Pulaski cocked his head and readied his pen as somebody at Bennington Wire picked up the phone to speak to the young cop in his new capacity as the emperor of the New York City Police Department. After a brief conversation, he hung up. What the hell's with the cable, Pulaski? First of all, that model cable's real common. They... How common? They sell millions of feet of it every year. It's mostly for medium-voltage distribution. 60,000 volts is medium? I guess so. You can buy it from any electrical supply wholesaler. But he did say that Algonquin buys it in bulk. Salito asked, Who there would order it? Technical Supplies Department. I'll give him a call, Salito said. He did so and had a brief conversation. He disconnected. They're going to check to see if anything's missing from inventory. Ryan was gazing at the grating. So he climbed through the manhole earlier and into the Algonquin workspace under the alley. Sachs said he might have been down the steam pipe manhole to do some work and seen the grating that led to the tunnel. Definitely suggests it's an employee. Rhyme hoped this was the case. Inside jobs made cops work a lot easier. Let's keep going. The boots? She said, similar boot prints in both the access tunnel and near where the wire was rigged inside the substation. And any prints from the coffee shop? That one, Pulaski responded as he pointed to an electrostatic print. Under the table. Looks like the same brand to me. Mel Cooper examined it and concurred. The young officer continued, and Amelia had me check the boots of the Algonquin workers who were there. They were all different. Rhyme turned his attention to the boot. What's the brand, do you think, Mel? Cooper was browsing through the NYPD's footwear database, which contained samples of thousands of shoes and boots, the vast majority of which were men's shoes. Most serious felonies involving physical presence at the scene were committed by men. Rhyme had been instrumental in creating the expanded shoe and boot database years ago. He worked out voluntary arrangements with all the major manufacturers to have scans of their lines sent into the NYPD regularly. After returning to forensic work following his accident, Rhyme had stayed involved in maintaining the department's product and materials databases, including this one. After working on a recent case involving data mining, he'd come up with an idea that was now used in many police departments around the country. He'd recruited, well, bullied, the NYPD into hiring a programmer to create computer graphics images that depicted the soul of each shoe in the database in different stages of wear. New, after six months, one year, and two years. And then to show images of the soles of shoes worn by people who had splayed feet or were pigeon-toed. He'd also gotten the computer guru to indicate wear patterns as a function of height and weight. The project was expensive but took surprisingly little time to get online and resulted in nearly instantaneous answers to the questions of the brand and age of shoe and the height, weight, and stride characteristics of the wearer. The database had already helped in the identification of three or four perps. His fingers flying over the keys, Cooper said, Got a match. Albertson Fenwick Boots and Gloves, Incorporated, Model E20. He perused the screen. Not surprising they've got special insulation. They're for workers who have regular contact with live electrical sources. They meet ASTM electrical hazard standard F2413-05. They're size 11. 
Rhyme squinted as he looked them over. Deep treads. Good. This meant they would retain significant quantities of trace material. Cooper continued. They're fairly new, so there's no distinctive wear marks that tell us much about his height, weight, or other characteristic. I'd say he walks straight, though. Agree? Rhyme was looking at the prints on his screen, broadcast from a camera over the examining table. Yes. Sax wrote this on the board. Good, Sax. Now, rookie, what's the invisible evidence you found? Gazing at the plastic envelope labeled Coffee Shop Opposite Blast, table where suspect was sitting. Cooper was examining it. Blonde hair, one inch long, natural, not dyed. Rhyme loved hair as a forensic tool. It could often be used for DNA sampling, if the bulb was attached, and it could reveal a lot about the suspect's appearance through color and texture and shape. Age and sex could also be reckoned with more or less accuracy. Hair testing was becoming more and more popular as a forensic and an employment tool since hair retained traces of drugs longer than urine or blood. An inch of hair held a two-month history of drug use. In England, hair was frequently used to test for alcohol abuse. We're not sure it's his, Salito pointed out. Of course not, Rhyme muttered. We're not sure of anything at this point. But Pulaski said, It's pretty likely, though. I talked to the owner. He makes sure the busboys wipe the table down after every customer. I checked. And nobody'd wiped it after the perp was there because of the explosion. Good, rookie. Cooper continued, speaking of the hair. No natural or artificial curves. It's straight. No evidence of depigmentation, so I'd put him under 50 years old. I want a tox chem analysis, ASAP. I'll send it to the lab. A commercial lab, Rhyme ordered. Wave a lot of money at them for fast results. Salito grumbled. We don't have a lot of money. and We've got our own perfectly good lab in Queens. It's not perfectly good if they don't get me the results before our perp kills somebody else, Lon. How's uptown testing? Cooper asked. Good. Remember, wave money. Jesus, the city doesn't revolve around you, Link. It doesn't? Rhyme asked, with surprise in his eyes that was both feigned and genuine. With the CEMEDS, the scanning electron microscope and energy dispersive X-ray spectroscope, Mel Cooper analyzed the trace evidence Sachs had collected where the unsub had rigged the wire. I've got some kind of mineral and different from the substrata around the substation. What's it made up of? It's about 70% feldspar, then quartz, magnetite, mica, calcite, and amphiboles, some anhydrite, too. Curious large percentages of silicon. Rhyme knew the geology of the New York area well. When mobile, he'd strolled around the city, scooping up samples of dirt and rock and creating databases that could help him match perp and locale. But this combination of minerals was a mystery to him. It certainly wasn't from around here. We need a geologist. Rhyme thought for a moment and made a call with speed dial. Hello? A man's soft voice answered. Arthur, Rhyme said to his cousin, who lived not far away in New Jersey. Hey, how are you? Rhyme reflected that it seemed everybody was asking about his health today, though Arthur was just making conversation. Good. 
It was nice seeing you and Amelia last week. Rhyme had recently reconnected with Arthur Rhyme, who'd been like a brother to him and with whom he'd grown up outside Chicago. Though the criminalist was hardly one for weekends in the country, he'd astonished Sachs by suggesting that the two of them take up an invitation to visit Art Rhyme and his wife Judy at their small vacation house on the shore. Arthur revealed that he'd actually built a wheelchair ramp to make it accessible. They'd gone out to the place along with Tom and Pammy and her dog Jackson for a couple of days. Rhyme had enjoyed himself. While the women and canine hiked the beach, he and Arthur had talked science and academia and world events, their opinions growing inarticulate in direct proportion to the consumption of single malt scotch. Arthur, like Rhyme, had a pretty good collection. You're on speaker here, Art, with, well, a bunch of cops. I've been watching the news. You're running this electricity incident, I'll bet. Terrible. The press is saying it's probably an accident, but he gave a skeptical laugh. No, not accidental at all. We don't know whether it's a disgruntled employee or a terrorist. Anything I could do to help? Arthur was a scientist, too, and somewhat more broad-based than rhyme. Actually, yes, I've got a fast question for you. Well, I hope it's fast. We found some trace at the crime scene, and it doesn't match any substrata nearby. In fact, it doesn't match any geologic formation in the New York area I'm familiar with. I've got a pen. Give me what you found. Rhyme recited the results of their tests. Arthur was silent. Rhyme pictured his cousin lost in thought as he gazed at the list he'd jotted, his mind running through possibilities. Finally, he asked, How big are the particles? Mel? Hi, Art. It's Mel Cooper. Hi, Mel. Been dancing lately? We won the Long Island Tango competition last week. We're going to regionals on Sunday, unless I'm stuck here, of course. Mel, Rhyme urged. Particles. Yes, very small, about 0.25 millimeters. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's tephra. What? Rhyme asked. Arthur spelled it. Volcanic matter. The word's Greek for ash. In the air, after it's blown out of the volcano, it's pyroclast, broken rock, but on the ground, it's called tephra. Indigenous? Rhyme asked. In an amused voice, Arthur said, It's indigenous somewhere, but you mean around here? Not anymore. You could find a very minuscule trace amount in the northeast given a major eruption on the west coast and strong prevailing winds, but there haven't been any lately. In those proportions, I'd say most likely the source was the Pacific Northwest. Maybe Hawaii. So however this got to a crime scene, it would have been carried there by the perp or somebody. That'd be my call. Well, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, and Judy said she's going to email Amelia that recipe she wanted. Rhyme hadn't heard that part of the conversation during the weekend out of town. It must have occurred on one of the beach walks. Sachs called, No hurry. After they disconnected, Rhyme couldn't help but look at her with a raised eyebrow. You're taking up cooking? Pammy's going to teach me. She shrugged. How hard can it be? I figure it's just like rebuilding a carburetor, only with perishable parts. Rhyme gazed at the chart. Tephra. So maybe our perp's been to Seattle or Portland recently or to Hawaii. I doubt that much trace would travel very well, though. 
I'm betting he was in or near a museum, school, geologic exhibit of some kind. Do they use volcanic ash in any kind of business? Maybe polishing stones, like carborundum. Cooper said, This is too varied and irregular to be milled commercially. Too soft, too, I'd think. Hmm, how about jewelry? Do they make jewelry out of lava? None of them had ever heard of that, though, and Rhyme concluded that the source had to be an exhibit or display that the perp had attended or that was near where he lived or where a future target was. Mel, have somebody in Queens start calling. Check out any exhibits, traveling, or permanent displays in the area that have anything to do with volcanoes or lava. Manhattan first. He gazed at the access door wrapped in plastic. Now, let's look at what Amelia went swimming with. Your turn at bat, rookie. Make us proud. Cleaning his latex gloves with the pet hair roller and drawing an approving look from Rhyme, the young officer hefted the access door and surrounding frame still connected. The door was about 18 inches square and the frame added another two or so inches. It was painted dark gray. Sachs was right, it was a tight fit. The unsub very likely would have sloughed off something from his body as he entered the substation. The door opened with four small turn latches on both sides. They would have been awkward to loosen with a gloved hand, so there was a chance he'd used bare fingers, especially since he'd planned on blowing up the door with the battery bomb and destroying evidence. Fingerprints fell into one of three categories. Visible, the sort left by a bloody thumb on a white wall. Impressible, left in pliable material like plastic explosive. And latent, hidden to the unaided eye. There were dozens of good ways to raise latent prints, but one of the best, on metal surfaces, was simply to use store-bought superglue, cyanoacrylate. The object would be put in an airtight enclosure with a container of the glue, which would then be heated until it turned gaseous. The vapors would bond with any number of substances left by the finger, amino and lactic acids, glucose, potassium, and carbon trioxide, and the resulting reaction created a visible print. The process could work miracles, raising prints that were completely invisible before. Except, not in this case. Nothing, Pulaski said, discouraged, peering at the access door through a very Sherlock Holmesian magnifier. Only glove smudges. Not surprising. He's been fairly careful so far. Well, collect trace from the inside of the frame where he made contact. Pulaski did this using a soft brush over the newsprint examination sheets and taking swabs. He placed whatever he found, to rhyme it seemed like very little, into bags and organized them for Cooper to analyze. Salito took a call and then said, Hold on, you're being speakered. Hello? came the voice. Rhyme glanced at Salito. Who? he whispered. Sonic, the NYPD computer crimes expert. What do you have for us, Rodney? Rock music clattered around in the background. I can almost guarantee that whoever played with the Algonquin servers had the passcodes up front. In fact, I will guarantee that. First of all, we found no evidence of any attempted intrusion, no brute force attack, no shredded code of root kits, suspicious drivers, or kernel modules, or just the bottom line, you don't mind. 
Okay, what I'm saying is, we looked at every port. He hesitated at rhyme sigh. Uh, bottom line, it was and wasn't an inside job. Which means, rhyme grumbled, the attack was from outside Algonquin's physical building. We know that. But the perp had to get the codes from inside headquarters in Queens. Either him or an accomplice. They're kept in hard copies and on a random code generator that's isolated from networks. So, the criminalist summarized, just to make sure, no outside hackers, domestic or international. Next to impossible. Uh, I'm serious, Lincoln. Not a single rootkit. Got it, Rodney. Any trace on his line from the coffee shop? Prepaid cell connecting through a USB port. Went through a proxy in Europe. Ryan was tech enough to know that this meant the answer to his question was no. Thanks, Rodney. How do you get any work done with that music? The man chuckled. Call me any time. The raucous hammering disappeared with the disconnecting click. Cooper, too, was on the phone. He hung up and said, I found somebody in materials analysis at HQ. She's got a geology background. She knows a lot of the schools that have regular exhibits for the public. She's checking on volcanic ash and lava. Pulaski, pouring over the door, squinted. Got something here, I think. He pointed to a portion of the door near the top latch. Looks like he wiped it off. He grabbed the magnifying glass. And there's a burr of metal, sharp. I think he cut himself and bled. Really? Rhyme was excited. There's nothing like DNA in forensic work. Salito said, But if he cleaned it off, does it still do us any good? Before Rhyme could offer anything, Pulaski, still hunched over his find, mused, But what would he have to clean it off with? Maybe spit. That's as good as blood. This was going to have been Rhyme's conclusion. Use the ALS. Alternative light sources can reveal bodily fluids like traces of saliva, semen, and sweat, all of which contain DNA. All law enforcement agencies were now taking samples of DNA of suspects in certain types of offenses, sex crimes, for instance, and many were going further than that. If their unsub had committed a swabbable offense, he'd be in the Combined DNA Index System database, CODIS. A moment later, Pulaski, wearing goggles, paused the wand over a portion of the access door where he'd spotted the smear. There was a tiny yellowish glow. He called, Yes, sir, got something. Not much. Rookie, you know how many cells are in the human body? Well, no, I don't. Over three trillion. That's a lot of... And do you know how many are needed for a successful DNA sample? He said... According to your book, Lincoln, about a hundred. Rhyme lifted an eyebrow. Impressive. Then he added, You think you have a hundred cells there in that massive smear? Probably, I would think. You sure do. Sachs, looks like your swimming expedition wasn't in vain. If the battery had blown, it would have destroyed the sample. Okay, Mel, show him how to collect it. Pulaski ceded the tricky task to Cooper. STR? Rhyme asked the tech, or is the sample degraded? The polymerase chain reaction short tandem repeat method was the standard DNA test in criminal cases. It was fast and the most reliable system with at least a billion to one accuracy. 
It could also determine the sex of the person from whom the sample came. But while the sample could be very small, it had to be in good shape. If it had been damaged by the water or heat in the substation, a different test, mitochondrial DNA, would have to be used, a technique that took longer. I think it'll be fine. The tech collected the DNA and called the lab for pickup. I know, ASAP, he told Rhyme, just as the criminalist had been about to crack the whip. And spare no expense. That coming out of your fee, Link? Salito grumbled. I give you my best customer discount, Lon. And a good find, Pulaski. Thanks, I... Having delivered enough compliments for the time being, Rhyme moved on. What about the choice?